It was when the towers came down. I felt I had an obligation, mm. and I wasn't going to let other people go in my place. When I worked up at the, at, at the front gate as a designated marksman, we would have people from the local towns walk up and be like, hey, this guy came up to me in the middle of the night and offered me the equivalent of 10,000 cash here in the U.S. to go plan IEDs on this route. What do you want me to do with the IEDs? And there was one time where I searched a guy and I lifted his shirt up and he had a map of the base drawn on his belly. In Sharpie? Yeah. Like on his... Yes. It's interesting because a lot of the problems like hypervigilance and all these things are assets when you're over there. Now, part of the problem is we treat mental injuries and physical injuries different. If you have a physical injury, you get a purple heart. You're treated as a hero. Everything. You have a mental injury, you're just crazy. I knew death would stop it, and I figured if I'm going to go out, I'm going to send a message. What's cooking, everybody? I am joined in the bunker today by John LaBecki. And if you heard that intro snippet right there, yes, John is a veteran who happened to serve both in the Marines as well as in the Army pre and post 9 11. And you will hear all about that today, his story of his deployments and also his story of what happened when he came back. So John was recently featured in yet another documentary. He's been in several, but the most recent was Michael Pollan's four-part docuseries on Netflix called How to Change Your Mind. It's an excellent series. It's based on a book of the same name that Michael Pollan wrote, and I'd highly recommend it. But John was featured in episode three because... He was able to cure his severe PTSD through MDMA therapy, obviously done in a fully professional study here in the United States, and he's been an advocate for it down in Washington, D.C., working with both parties since. So we talked all about that today. Again, we got through his whole story as well. We had a lot of good conversations in there and little debates about hot-button issues too. So this was a very full podcast, and I really, really appreciate John doing it, and I hope you guys are going to enjoy. Now, as always... Hit that link in my description for the 8 Sleep Pod Pro cover, not just for me and to support the show, but for yourself so that you can sleep better than ever before. The 8 Sleep Pod Pro cover comes in queen or king sizes. It goes right on top of your current mattress, and you are going to have a seamless sleep because the 8 Sleep app is going to work throughout the night and make sure that you get the deepest sleep possible. So if you use the code TRENDIFIER at checkout, that's T-R-E-N-D-I-F-I-E-R, you'll get $150 off your own 8 Sleep Pod Pro cover today. So hit that link and check it out. If you're on YouTube right now, please hit that subscribe button. Please hit that like button on the video. And as always, would love to hear from you down in the comment section below to everyone who's been sharing around the episodes. Thank you. Let's keep that rolling. To everybody who is on Apple or Spotify right now, thank you for checking out the show over there. If you haven't already, be sure to leave a five-star review on either one of those platforms. And I look forward to seeing you guys again for future episodes. That said, you know what it is. I'm Julian Dory. This is Trendifier. And please welcome John LeBecky passed by in you know two tractor trailers who take you know 20 miles to pass each other 10 miles below speed limit it just backs everything up and that wouldn't go in jersey and i don't think we'd let that happen around here we're a little crazy driving but when did you like what was your full timeline here because the stuff we're going to end up getting to is the is basically the psychedelic research you were involved in early on where you were a participant as well and now you work in that and have been doing this for years which is really really cool but when in relation to that which i think started in 2014 like when were you deployed when did you go into the army and, and what was your full background there so 
I, I, I will say the research has been going on for decades. Um, I became involved in the research in 2014. So I don't want people to think that, you know, 2014 is when all this started. Because there's been a lot of people who've been working for a very yeah. long time to get it where it is. Uh, so I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. I knew college really wasn't for me when I graduated. So I joined the Marine Corps delayed entry program in my right after my junior year. Shipped for boot camp nine days after I graduated from high school. Went down to uh, not Charleston, South Carolina, which which I love and lived in for about a decade, but uh, Paris Island, South Carolina. Mm. Uh, four years in the Marine Corps, had a blast. Um, I was a load master on C-130s and C-9s, flew around the world, lived in Japan for a year. You know, that was my 18 to 22. I didn't go to college. And I'm glad that I did that, not just because of the service, but traveling the world, seeing and interacting with different cultures and, 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 you know, you know, I lived in Japan for a year. I don't speak Japanese. I know what it feels like, you know, to live in a country where you can't speak the language. What's the name of the base out there again? Well, the base I was actually on was, uh, Marine Corps air station Fatema on Okinawa, but Mm. that base has since closed and they moved all the C-130s up to... Masawa, somewhere on, on mainland okay. Japan. Um, what closed, were you doing over there? Like uh, specific, what was your job? To load and unload the airplane and fly wherever it went. Mm. Um, that's the short version. Uh, you do airdrops, um, which I actually never got to do airdrops. Um, but C-130 crew, you know, it's a. It, back then we were on F&R models, which is an older aircraft. I never flew on a military aircraft until actually – very recently that was mm. actually younger than me um <laughs> it's not reassuring <laughs> yeah i mean i the c-130s that were that i flew on in in the late 90s you know were landing at caisson in vietnam and you could see where there were like patches from from different holes and stuff we do have a lot of new shit though too right? oh yeah. uh, so so in fair, sure yeah no, no no this was 95 to 99 so so in fairness to the Marine Corps, uh, they actually got the C-130s first, which was a giant shock to everyone in the Marine C-130 community. Uh, so they've all been upgraded to J models. Um, as a matter of fact, one of the last F models, uh, F and R models, was uh, Fat Albert with the uh, Blue Angels down in Pensacola. Mm. They just got delivery of their brand new J model, um, and it, they're running it through its paces down there. And I'm pretty sure it'll join the air show circuit here pretty soon. Uh, but that allowed me to do that and you know when you're gone as as much as you are as an air crewman being in a relationship doesn't really right. work too well you know when i was in the divorce rate for for my mos was like 300 <laughs> percent, meaning everybody's on their third or fourth marriage yeah. and things like this so I, I i met a girl um and was stupid <laughs> And got Didn't it. take the warnings. <laughs> no, no, she she was really fantastic. It's just to be honest, when I deployed, she couldn't really handle that. So it's hard. It is, um, especially there was a lot of other factors. She was actually going through nursing school at the time, and a mm. lot of the people she was hanging out with were former military spouses, and so. She thought I was cheating with people back in the United States oh. while I was in Iraq, which was kind of weird, but. Everybody in her nursing class was like, yeah, my husband cheated on me when he went to Iraq. So I've two weeks before I came back from Iraq, um, she left and 
I came home, no one met the airplane, watched everyone in my unit go to somebody. Um, actually, I'll, I'll never forget, I walked out into the rain, flipped open my cell phone and called Sprint at the time and turned my cell phone back on because it had been off for a year. Yeah. <laughs> Tried to call her, couldn't find her, um, took a taxi to my house. Found out my house was empty, my dog was gone, my motorcycle was gone. Oh, you didn't even know. No, no idea. So I came home to a country song, which also didn't help my mental health. Um, I'll bet. But that's kind of going fast forward. So I got out of the Marines, um, and I worked in logistics. Uh, Really loved it, kind of had a knack for it. Uh, Worked for a utility for a long time and worked for a manufacturing company. And I enjoyed logistics because I like to solve problems. And so... uh, Four years go by, and uh, I watch 9-11, as many did. I knew entirely on 9-11 I was going back in um, because I knew it was going to happen. I went and I had a blast for four years, and I got to travel the world on on the government's dime. They trained me to do a lot of different things. And that was 95? Yeah, 95 to 99, I was in the Marines. And then, uh, so... So now you're working in logistics, and 9-11 happens. Now I'm on track. Gotcha. That was a really, really interesting... (laughs) interesting day because i actually i had started that job two weeks earlier and i was running all commercial transportation for a major utility company in the southeast oh wow that had you know things like four nuclear power plants yeah and it was interesting because you know i just got you know recently gotten out of the marine corps i still and the guy i was with was he was a logistics guy just complete civilian he happened to be from cleveland too uh, good guy. And, you know, he comes up and he goes, man, you got to come to the conference room and see what's going on. I'm like, why? And he goes, plane hit the World Trade Center. Now, me being an aviation guy, my brain goes back to during World War II, a small fighter hit the Empire State Building. Yes. So my thought when he first said that was some sightseeing like Cessna or something like that got lost in the clouds because I'd flown into New York Center uh, when I was in the Marine Corps. So, like, I'd seen the World Trade Center poking up through the clouds. And I'm like, okay, sightseeing plane got lost in the clouds and hit the building. That sucks, but I got work to do. Did you still think that when you saw the size of the hole, though? Well, like, once you took a good look? So, yeah, and I'm, I'm getting to that. So, he, oh, so, so then he, <laughs> he comes back and he's like, no, dude, seriously, you got to see this. I'm like, all right, fine. I figure I'm going to go say, yeah, it's exactly what I thought. And I'll go back to my desk. Uh, but hey, you know, back before COVID, when we had to go to the office, there was lots of stuff we would do at the office just because it was easier to go do X than to like argue it. I walked in right as the second plane hit. Oh, geez. And right then I knew exactly what was going on. Because I was in aviation, I had a very, very strong idea of what the reaction was going to be. Um, one of which is they were going to ground every aircraft in the United States. Um, and the only aircraft flying would be military. And that is exactly what they did very rapidly. Um, but because of that, I'm like, I run logistics. A lot of our stuff goes on airplanes. I have four high security nuclear plants that have shipments scheduled all day. All of this go back to my desk, immediately sit down. Take, you know, take a second, formulate a plan, put it into action. Um, I halted all shipments to all the nuclear power plants, 100%. Mm-hmm. 
complete lockdown, canceled, you know, had everything held at the docks. As people forget, that day when that was going on, what, everyone nobody... thought something was just going to blow up to their left. It was crazy. And your and your nuclear security, and you've got a dude in an old Dominion, you know, LTL truck delivering a skid who sneezes wrong. That can go bad it, yeah. it, for everybody. So by re removing that pressure, it allowed security to focus on what they needed to and, and, and focus on the people that had to go in. Because I, I called up and I'm like, you tell me anything that has to be delivered today or the shit shuts, shuts down. And they're like, nothing. I'm like, cool, done. I pulled, I was fortunate to be able to pull all the paychecks for Florida because this is back before everybody had to deposit. <laughs> um, show my age here a bit. And, you know, they, uh, and pulled, was able to pull those off, off of FedEx and put them in a cargo van and drove them down to the central, to, to the corporate, the like Florida corporate office mm. so that everyone in Florida could get paid. Wow. Because that was a Thursday. Friday's a payday. Well, it got hit on a Tuesday or right? a Tuesday. Yeah. It, it's, it was it, like the next day, it, payday was within a day or two. Now, about half of those were just pay stubs because of direct deposit, but there were a lot of people who had hard checks. Yeah. Um, yeah this and, is 01, for sure. And and it's really, it's kind of funny. People today don't realize like what it was like to not have airline, not have any planes flying for like a week. Yeah. Was it a full seven days that they grounded everything? Yeah, it, it, was, it, it was a lengthy amount of time. Um and everything ground to a halt. Some of the, I guess, like FAA guys will talk about seeing the the radar just go silent and just sitting there. Like when you see some of these interviews where they're remembering that day and then the days after it and, and seeing not a, like almost like a dead heartbeat monitor when they're so used to seeing like spec, 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 spec. And it's just like it, it really brought it home for them because – when it was first happening and they were just getting everyone on the ground, I was like, all right, just get everything on the ground. And then you're like, oh my God, this. Yeah, this air traffic is real. control. Like, if you've ever been in, in, in a tower or, you know, been fortunate enough to see one of the, one of the, the centers, like New York Center, those guys, they, they show up, they sit down, and boom, like, it's constant chaos to keep all these planes flying, keep everything. Because you've got planes crisscrossing each other, and you know a couple thousand feet apart, and you got to make sure they don't slam into each other, and all these things. It, it, it's controlled chaos, and it's just constant. And then to sit there with nothing to do, just sit and and watching that, especially when you know if you see a blink, problem that that could mean you know another building comes down. Right. That could mean God knows what. And you know, I. I that was an interesting day for America, and we can discuss everything that happened after that. But that was that was a day we all came together. Yes. Um, you know, I'll never forget seeing the entire House of Representatives sitting on the steps of the Capitol singing God Bless America. Yeah. I doubt that would happen today. It's very sad that you say that, but I... I am closer to agreeing with you than disagreeing with you. I don't think we could know until, God forbid, something like that happened. And I hope it, it doesn't, obviously. But but I also sad. think there, there's a lot of stories from that day that, sh that show our better angels. Yes. Um, guy I graduated from high school with uh, was in one of the towers, Dan Swingos. He you know, played football in high school, played football for Princeton. And on 9-11, he literally picked up 
two people and carried them like a football and wow. ran away. You know, I, I'm sure you remember the stories of airplanes that they allowed to take off with military escort because of organ transplants. Wait, I haven't heard those stories. Oh yeah, I always learn something. There's always something new. With, there, like, there, there was, yeah, there was there was a flight or two like the day after or the day of, and it was a, it was a situation of this is a heart. Somebody has tragically died. If this doesn't get to this person, that person also dies, and they made a call. Now, I guarantee you those pilots <laughs> got looked into. They had a military escort. Yeah. You know, all these other things. But that actual permission came from uh, the president because that was the only person who could give that order. Wow. I never knew that. But, yeah, I mean, there's things – you think about everything we do with planes to say nothing of regular supply chains and day-to-day. -day. I mean, something bad like that happens. Okay, it's got to shut down for a few days. We saw what happened with COVID even – not with planes, but you know what I mean. But, like – there are life and death situations that rely on planes all the time that we just don't think about. And I never, I've never heard that. I'm gonna look into that after this. See those stories up close. That's so cool. But uh, so that was my 911. Yeah. Um, but I, and it was interesting because I also uh, I worked in a high rise uh, in downtown Raleigh, and you know they they came across the speakers and they said you know we're in a high rise you know this is a potential target if you mm. don't feel comfortable go home. Then I got a tap on my shoulder, and they're like, "You're critical personnel." You're <laughs> I'm like, "That's cool," uh, and it's funny because my dad uh, he actually worked for the power company his whole career, and he would, and he was critical personnel because he was one of his jobs along the way was he was the guy who sat there doing dispatch, which is making sure that like the electricity goes where it needs to be, mm. and there's not too much electricity or not enough, so you don't have brownouts or blow up transformers. So you literally have to have somebody there the whole time they would get bomb threats and he, he would tell me he'd be sitting there, you know, he's, and they come up and they're like, you're critical personnel. Everyone else evacuates the building. You're here to die. <laughs> and, and like cops come in with bomb sniffing dogs and they're like, he's just working. Well, the first place he, he did say, you know, in fairness, the first place they always checked was under my desk. <laughs> um, I'm like, well, okay. They cleared your area and then went out, did it the rest of the time. But it was kind of funny. And you know, hurricanes, ice storms, same way. Um, and, but because of 9-11, I knew I was going back in. Um, so as a loadmaster, I looked at, you know, being a loadmaster for the Marines again. And what, what part was that? So I, I just want to make sure I yeah. understand this, though, because when it happened, you had to think about the your job first and what you actually had to be responsible for, as you described. But, like, at the same moment, did you already know that? Like, okay, I'm going to take care of this, and then I'm going over there and fighting whatever this is? Or was that later that day when you had a chance to take a breath? It was when the towers came down. Mm. When it wasn't two towers with a giant smoking hole, but when both towers collapsed, I knew right then because I knew my country was going to war and, you know, I didn't have kids at the time and, you know, I had, a, I had a wife, but also, you know, I had been trained. I had a lot of fun. The government spent probably a million dollars to train me. I felt I had an obligation mm. and I wasn't going to let other people go in my place. So... I, I was so so I looked at the at the Marines and they only have two reserve C one thirty units because the work I was doing with the utility and working with access control procedures and things like that was also important work. Um was in Texas and New York. Well I lived in North Carolina and that's kind of a hike. So I actually started looking at uh, the Army and the Army National Guard because they had a thing called warrant officer pilots. Um, mm. where, where you don't have to go to college, but you still get to go to flight school. And I'd always wanted to do that, which is why I was air crew, but I couldn't because I had, you know, crappy eyes. 
well, then they had this cool thing called laser eye surgery, <laughs> and the Army started a, an investigational trial uh, to determine if warrant officer pi- or if pilots could undergo, well, helicopter pilots specifically, could undergo LASIK eye surgery, in part because most of the issues with LASIK eye surgery in aviation have to do with emergency decompression at a high altitude. What, is, what does that mean? Which part? Emergency, <laughs> emergency decompression at a high altitude. So you, so if you're on an airplane and it's at 36,000 feet and you have an emergency decompression, meaning either something goes wrong with the airplane that causes a giant hole, like a window blows out, mm. or there's also emergency procedures, for example, smoke and fumes, fires, things like that, where there's a little handle in the cockpit, they pull it and it blows this round thing mm. that decompresses the aircraft immediately. Um, and, and there's very valid reasons, you know, in emergency procedures for this. The issue becomes if you have LASIK eye surgery with a corneal flap cut and there's an emergency decompression, there's a risk that that corneal flap will pop open and then you have a blind pilot. Not a good thing. (laughs) Helicopters aren't pressurized. Therefore Mm. it's not an issue. Um, so, and I actually don't have a corneal flap good. I got LASIK, L-A-S-E-K versus I-K, slightly different procedure. Doesn't have any of those issues. Um, but I qualified and started going, you know, enlisted in the Army and started going through warrant officer selection. And they trained me to be a uh, MLRS fire direction uh, specialist. Wow. So, so you were a marine. You were in the Marines and in the Army. Yes, you don't hear that very often. <laughs> no, that's because when you threw me off earlier for a second, you're like, "I became a Marine." I'm like, "Wait, you were in the Army?" So I was wondering how that was going to happen. But this was all because of the opportunity, basically, to be able to fly. Right. And so uh, learned a lot about artillery. Did a bunch of cool stuff there, and then uh, got put on alert to go to Iraq. Um, well, when was- here's a question: When did you? When did you officially enlist? Like how long after September 11th did all this get sorted out? And you Three days after the initial invasion in Iraq. Okay. So, so then they March put you in. They put you in to get the LASIK. No, then... no, no. I, so, so part of the deal with the, with the trial was I, I paid out, out of my own pocket for the eye surgery. So you did that after September 11th though? Yes. And then you went in, trained all this stuff, and then we're in what? Like 03, 04, and now Iraq's going on? Yeah. So I, I – I, uh, raised my right hand three days after the initial invasion in Iraq. Um, not because of the invasion in Iraq. That's just when it was scheduled. Um, and so, uh, you know, initially went to uh, MOS school down in Fort Bragg to learn how to do MLRS stuff, multiple launch rockets. Uh, you may have seen those on the news. They're kind of a big deal over in Ukraine right now. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, it was assigned a unit you know, started doing the physicals and, and, you know, had to take the AFQT test and, and do all the stuff for selection and go to boards. Um, and then I found out right after I got put on alert, which was, uh, like January of Oh five is when I like three days after I get notified that, um, uh, you know, Hey, I'm selected, but I'm on alert. So I'm like, okay, does this mean I go to Fort Rucker or Iraq? Because those are two very different things. Right. And they had a shortage of pilots at the time. So I, I legitimately didn't know, are they going to send me to flight school and then send me to Iraq? Or are they just going to send me to Iraq? Um, I was kind of hoping for the flight school part, but, you know, hey. So 
Uh, they're like, nah, you'll just go to Rucker when you get back. I'm like, all right, cool. So uh, we go up to Camp Atterbury, Indiana for like three months uh, of training. Um, had a head injury there, actually. Uh, How'd you do that? <laughs> um, so we were out in, in, in the FOB. Uh, it's a forward operating base, so it's a, a field exercise. And they were simulating an attack. And and I w- was running to go do what I was supposed to do, which was to set up security around a transformer and stuff so it didn't get attacked. And, yeah, I I, I tripped on a tent wire. Oh, yikes. But so you've seen the NVG mounts on the front of the helmets, right? NV, Night vision goggles. Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah. So it's a mount that just mounts on the helmet, and then NVG goggles just click on, right? So there's this little metal thing that comes down goes in, up, and back to hold it against the helmet, the front ridge of the helmet. Well, when you trip and bang your head on the front, those two prongs go right in oh. your head. So, that, that, so I got a concussion uh, there. That was, that was my first TBI. Yikes. Um, and then we uh, flew over to Kuwait, spent about a month in Kuwait doing additional training, and then went in country. Um, uh, Bravo Battery 5th and 113th Field Artillery was my unit uh we fell under 548th logistics task force with the 10th mountain um and my where were you stationed in iraq uh based out of balad balad all right i'll pull up the map uh lsa anaconda uh smack dab in the center of the sunni triangle probably about 45 50 clicks northwest of baghdad if memory serves got it i'm just zooming out right now it'll be in the corner of the screen for people too to look at so it it had a fun nickname called Mortaritaville. Mortaritaville. Uh, oh yeah, and if you want to laugh hysterically, yeah, go on YouTube. By the way, yeah, there there was uh, if you go on YouTube uh, and and just Google or Google or go on YouTube and do a search for Mortaritaville, <laughs> they took this the the Jimmy Buffett song Margaritaville. Oh no. Yes. Oh, and they are so <laughs> funny. When you uh, got here, here's the thing. You know, it, it's really funny because there's a there's a joke that goes around every time a new call of duty comes out that, you know, this is going to be call of duty, true, true army, which means, you know, you get woken up in the middle of the night to, to, to play most of the action in the game over 15 minutes. And then you spend a month twiddling your thumbs and like Mm. burning diesel fuel and shit and things like that. Um, there's a lot of sitting around, you get bored, you know, and, and you do, you're also in a high stress environment. Um, general order one says, you know, no sex, uh, no drugs, no alcohol, no porn, no, no sex, no nothing. Uh, yes, unless you're married and your spouse is deployed with you. What? This is a thing. Yeah, go read General Order One in 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 Iraq. And and here's sounds the, like prison. Well, and here's the crazy part: like they wonder why people come back with problems. Like you take eighteen to twenty two year old kids, which is most of the people. I granted, I was twenty nine when I deployed, but and you're like, hey. We're going to take every vice and every way of blowing off steam away right. from you and hand you a loaded rifle and go tell, tell you to go go kill the bad guys. And they wonder why they come back with problems. You know, there's there's processing that needs to go on. And, you know, you see these these old World War Two movies and, you know, you, the squad gets together. And, oh, hey, we found a bottle of whiskey, <laughs> you know, or we found a bottle of gin and they all, you know, have a couple of drinks and they talk and they you know what? That's group therapy. When done correctly, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. It, it's processing, 
you know, they're, they're bullshitting. It's their friends. It, it, and, and that's a good thing. But there was nothing like that. I did find it funny because the Aussies were like, hey, we'll be part of your coalition, but uh, we're going to drink beer and look at porn. <laughs> um, so there's, Sorry, this little, uh, there's an Aussie <laughs> compound and they had all the beer and like their computers weren't locked out and things like that. Mm. Um, but also that meant the army could just mess with people over stupid things. Um, and this is where you, you got to see like the good leaders and the bad leaders. Like, hey, if they find a DVD, because this is again 0506, right. it's before like you could whip out a phone. You have the portable DVD players. Oh, oh, they the uh, <laughs> one of, one of the major issues uh, about the uh, coming back is everything's bootlegged. Literally, so mm. so I everybody had. And it's funny because you can't bring it home, so everybody just shares stuff. So we had the entire Hollywood library bootlegged, <laughs> like somewhere on base. If you wanted to see a movie, you could probably go, you know, just just go get it. And it, it, yeah, it's pretty funny. Was this the good bootleg where they actually had the file, or was it the one where the dude's like holding the camera up to the screen in the movie theater and it's oh, shaking? It entirely depends on which one and who did it. Sometimes, mm -hmm. yeah, it's totally a dude holding up like something in a movie theater and sometimes it's like oh wow they got the actual like digital rip off of this um and it's funny because the the dvds were obviously done in a burner and like they'd have stickers but the label would be just a scan of the original <laughs> dvd um but like so you can't bring those back but everybody had all these stacks of dvds and like yeah there there, there was porn dvds and stuff like that and you know when the commander comes in and he sees that, technically he's supposed to bust you. And I know people who got in trouble for that. Mm. Um, in other units, you know, my commander realized that, like, there's bigger fish to fry. Good for him. You know, but also, like, alcohol's an issue. Like, I, to, to be honest, you know, my, my commander, my uh, battery commander, um, you know, I, I, especially as I've gotten older, he was in a really tough position. Um, and, I, and I don't envy it, but. You know, I honestly genuinely don't think he would have cared if anybody had a beer. But, you know, we did have some people who got a hold of a bottle of alcohol and got drunk and then locked and loaded on people. And that's part of the reason some that's of these the rules, yeah. um, you know, and, and, and there's a lot of crazy stuff that goes on over there because, I mean, it's all high stress. You know, there's a reason my base was called Mortaritaville. How many people were on the base? I don't know if you said that. <sighs> Roughly ballpark. Probably I'd say less than 5,000, but I could be completely wrong. And how big was the base? So it used to be the former Air Force uh, Academy for Iraq. So do you remember when they mm -hmm. found the MiGs buried in the sand? No. Oh, uh, that was like 04. Um, apparently Saddam Hussein buried all his MiGs <laughs> in the sand so he could dig them up when we left. We found them. Um, mm -hmm. Go figure. Yeah. Didn't find nuclear weapons, but we found the MiGs he buried. Uh, and so, uh, but it... I mean, you could probably look at Wikipedia. Part of it is how many people were on that base depends on what year it was. And I don't remember, mm. but it was, it was, I mean, it was a lot because, so you had the theater hospital. It, it was one of the major installations that wasn't in the green zone. Um, and the green zone covered Baghdad. It was just Baghdad. It, and it was actually only certain sections of Baghdad. And the reason it was called the green zone is because there was also a red zone, which is where it wasn't safe. Right. Um, but no, my base got mortared like six thousand times, with mortars and rockets and all of that stuff. And and this is where it gets interesting when you start dealing with PTSD because there's people who I've talked to who worked in finance or supply, and and 
literally never left base. But they're getting mortared every day. Yeah, it's literally raining bombs every day. So what would they, who was dropping the bombs? To, like, Alistair Callaway's guys? Yeah, the, the insurgency. Right. So they're just dropping, I mean, were, were people dying left and right too? Is they're dropping bombs on it? Or uh, A lot of injuries um, from shrapnel and things like that. Anywhere from, you know, a couple of stitches or something like that, or just TBIs uh, to, yeah, there were, there were fatalities and, and, and casualties. Uh, I was going to say, it, you're sitting ducks. It, well, it's mortars and rockets. Um, and it was interesting because for, for part of my time there, I worked with local nationals and, uh, Iraqis who would come on base. Right. Um, you know, there is definitely a winning hearts and mind aspect to it. Were you working with Shiites in this case? Um, I never asked actually, um, Hmm. whether they were Shia or Sunni. Um, I did, you know, we did talk about, uh, you know, various, you know, I asked a lot of questions because I'm a curious, (laughs) curious person. Um, and uh, I did a personal security detail on a low-ranking Iraqi general, and uh, we were just talking. And it was funny because he said something. He's like, you know, it's funny, you Americans, you make fun of, of people in, in the Middle East because we have multiple wives. And I'm like, okay, this will be an interesting conversation. <laughs> and, uh, no, and he goes, one, we don't all have multiple wives. <laughs> He's like, I have a hard enough time with just one. And uh, he goes, but here's the thing. We do the same thing. It's our wealthy. It's our elite. They do the same thing as you're wealthy and elite. They just are public about it. They're just public about it. Instead of having a girlfriend in an apartment in L.A. while they live in New York with their wife and kids, the wife has to approve and (laughs) and be okay with it. And and all the women have to be treated equally. So so if you want to get a second wife, you can't knock down you know, the standard of living of the first wife or anything like this. He's like, it's the same thing. It's just a book board. And, I, you know, I remember that because it, it kind of reframed how I looked at a lot of things over there. I'm really glad mm. I worked with local nationals. Um, they're really good people. And they're also really bad people. And sure. It, you know, because there, there's one time. So part of it is to make sure, you know, you've got two guys and you've got anywhere from 10 to 25 Iraqis. And they do all sorts of odd jobs, you know, dig ditches, paint buildings, pick up trash, whatever. And they get, they got paid in U.S. dollars uh, every week. Uh, ex- I forget. It was like $30 a day or something like that. Did you ever accidentally get someone like undercover insurgent in those jobs? Um, no. I, I, well, it, it wasn't accidental. Um, I followed procedure. And one of the issues is like. Americans would go over there and they're like, oh, these, I, I hate doing local national duty. They're, they're, you know, these Iraqis are all dirty. They smell, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And they're like, I don't want to touch them. I'm like, I, I don't, literally, I don't care because, like, you've got to search these guys coming in. You've got to search these guys going out because, you know, this was also after the bombing at the, uh, the, the Chow Hall in Mosul where a guy walked in with a backpack mm-hmm. and a bomb and things like that. So there's an example. And there was one time where I searched a guy and I lifted his shirt up and he had a map of the base drawn on his belly. Which like, was, like in Sharpie? Yeah. Like on his... Yes. And that would then... he And the entire purpose of that was to uh, give that information to the insurgents so they knew where to target. Wait, so he was going... Oh, he was on his way out. Yes. Got it. So he'd okay. come on base to work that day and paste things off 
and which is also something you're supposed to watch for as an outline guard is watching people who are like <laughs> taking notes and lifting Counting their the shirt steps. up with a sharpie <laughs> and drawing on it with a sharpie how that got missed i don't know but um but yeah and so yeah he got, so what'd you do <laughs> oh no he got he he got zip tied and and we made a phone and and we made a phone call and some people came and picked him up um but you know when I worked up at the, at, at the front gate uh, as a designated marksman, you know, we would have people from the local towns walk up and be like, hey, this guy came up to me in the middle of the night and offered me the equivalent of 10,000 cash here in the U.S. to go plant IEDs on this route. What do you want me to do with the IEDs? This is somebody who was offered, would be like somebody coming up to, to you know, any like Amazon worker. And saying, hey, I'm going to give you 10 grand. All you got to do is go plant three bombs. And if you don't, I'm going to come back tomorrow and I'm going to kill you and your entire family. Jesus Christ. So. And they would come to you and tell you this, though. They'd come to the front gate. They'd just come to the base. It wasn't like they knew me and they were like, hey, I want to help John. It was. They thought it was the right thing to do. But, but that's. Did we protect people like that when they did that? To the best of our ability. Jesus. Wow. Hey guys, if you're enjoying the show, please be sure to share it around with your friends. Spreading the word about what we do here is the best possible help we can get to grow this thing and to continue to get great guests like this. So thank you to all of you who have been sharing the links to these episodes each week. And thank you to all of you who are going to do it now. And, and you know, it, it, it's de definitely interesting. And, you know, I question, you know, living here in America, how many people would do that? Fair question. And how many people go along to get along? How many people would put not only themselves, a lot of people are very willing to put the, themselves in jeopardy to do the right thing. Putting you and your family and your kids, your parents. It's a question you could ask in all fairness here. You could ask this question of anywhere. Yeah. You happen to be in the war zone where these people were forced to face that and you got to see the ones who did it you also didn't get to see the ones who didn't you right. know I, and i think thinking about this a little more i think it'd probably be a mixed bag like that you have the people who would do it and you have the people who wouldn't but well, and, and realize that this was it, it happened but it also wasn't like all day every day people coming up like sure. that you know it was a once in a blue moon thing but it always impressed me when people did that you know uh, i had other really great experiences over there like uh, i was there for the first free and fair election that they had ever experienced. It was like 06, yeah. right? Yeah. And so when you're on towers, uh, there was uh, two fence lines and then there was a canal. And we were cleared to shoot if anybody crossed the canal. And we had people going into the canal to show us their purple finger that they voted. <laughs> Which is why, I, so I came back uh, October 26, 2006. There was a big midterm election, November. I walked in, I wrote in a bunch, a bunch of guys I served for every office because <laughs> I didn't know who, who any of these people were. I hadn't been able to, yeah. like, I was always a person who, who liked politics and, you know, I, my vote mattered a lot to me. So I would do research and figure out who I wanted to vote. So what I did was I, I wrote in everybody, people's names. And then for issue items, I just voted no, because no was don't change anything mm. status quo, but I still showed up and voted. Right. You know, it's it's kind of funny how many people 
go on Twitter and Facebook and, and gripe and all this stuff, but they don't go to the polls and vote. That's why every election day, you know, I put out a thing about voting. I don't care who you vote for. You want to vote Green Party, you want to vote Libertarian, you want to vote Republican, you want to vote Democrat, cool. That's your your choice, your vote. But you still should show up. Yeah, I think people, it, it depends how they have their voice heard. If they are someone who, like you wrote in a bunch of people, right? And uh -huh. you just come back from the military, you've seen up close how much people will literally like give their life to want to be able to vote and, and have a fair system or what could appear to be a fair system. But then there are a lot of people who want their voice heard by not sharing it because, you know, they look at this country and they see two crazy parties. We all do know, just like you knew when you wrote in those guys, like they were mm -hmm. going to win. We do know no third party is going to win. The only thing it's going to do is maybe fuck it up for one of the parties, whoever it may be that year. And there, there are people out there who are very, very upset with the process. And it's something, by the way, that I struggle with because I can't stand the two parties either. And it's like, well, if I go in there, should I just be writing people in and then some poll worker has to you know, take two minutes of their time to write out all these people and keep the record of stuff that's that has no chance. And, you know, they're human beings and they're working. It's a fair question for some people to ask. Where I agree with you, though, is the people who go on there and just fucking complain about every fucking person to come in there left and right over and over and over again and then never actually do anything about it or never stand up or, or maybe even pick out a third party just to let their voice be heard if they're that passionate about it in that way. If this, they're doing that over a long time, I agree that that's probably not the way. Well, to go. And, and this is where I, I, I tell everyone who who says I'm going to protest by not voting. One, I really have an issue when people say my protest is not doing something that's a little bit inconvenient. Um, like I would rather somebody show up at the poll and write in somebody's name. I wish you know. Look at the past election. What was it? Sixty five percent turnout something like that maybe even as high as 70 one of the highest election turnout rates we, we sounds about right yeah, yeah. we've ever seen 30 percent of people didn't show up i can you imagine if 30 percent of people in america walked in and wrote in none of the above and because they, if That's there was an, an election put it. you know and they said okay uh you know candidate candidate red one house district three with you know 40 percent of the vote uh candidate b candidate blue lost he got 39 percent of the vote and 21 percent said none of the above if you put none of the above on the ballot do you know how many, it'd be interesting how many elections none of the above would win that should be a good movement to start because right now that would never happen. People would write someone in or they wouldn't vote or something like that. Looking at it from a utopitarian type view, yeah, that would be really powerful. But that's – and this is my issue too, like just talking to – But you got to show up. You got to show up and do the work. And, and this is one of the things that frustrates me the most um, in, in politics and in working in psychedelics and, and, and all of this is – it's really easy to say something and be seen saying something. It's a lot different to actually go do the work. And, and, you know, this is where, you know, the people who rail on Facebook, but don't show up and vote 
even if it's to write somebody in or write in none of the above or what have you. That's not a lot of work, though. That's the, like you keep calling it work. That's like no exactly. Work. I never thought of it that way. Well, like, but but okay. You know, in fairness, voting is you know it's on Tuesday. Like if people got to work, then they got to figure out. Like the, it's not a lot of work. You're right, but you know, you got to go do something. And yeah, and even nothing. that is too much to ask. Mm. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who. All they do is talk, and and it's and that's because it's about being seen saying something, especially by their friends and their peer group and, and their tribe. And then they let other people go do the hard work, and it's it's so funny when I hear people talk, you know, say, "Oh well, I manifested it by tweeting it," and then it happened. So it happened because <laughs> I did it. No, that's not how this works. Yeah, I got you there. Yeah, no, it's and and again, like you're seeing it up close, and and this is the part that I've had struggles with in the past with the whole voting thing it's like there are other places that would kill to be able to have that vote you know would kill to be able to do it there's no let's let's go with this there are literally places on this planet right now where people are being murdered yeah assassinated yes and wars are being fought simply for the right to have a vote right there's a lot of that and so i do try to balance that with how i look at it you know but whenever I talk with military – like I remember talking to my grandpa about this who served and stuff. I, I respect that, that opinion a lot. I voted in every election in my life. I did not vote in the 2020 election, and that was by choice. That was, that was a I wrote in Rick Doblin for president and Chris Lotlicker <laughs> for vice president. Um, we'll talk about Rick today. We'll talk yeah. about Rick. But also it's, it's kind of interesting. I, I think a lot of it also has to do with where you live. You know, I know a lot of Democrats, a lot of people on the left who, who say, I'm not a Democrat, but I am on the left, who lived in California, and they absolutely voted for Joe Biden. Yeah. If Donald Trump won California, he would have won all 50 states because the whole rest of the country would have been that way. They were in a position where they knew California would overwhelmingly and it did, like 65%, something like that. Yeah. In D.C., 92% for Biden. So if you don't didn't like him, you could. Like, I didn't ha – like, it didn't matter. I lived in – South. you know, I voted in South Carolina. I knew who was going to win South Carolina. If South Carolina went to Biden, then Biden won all 50 states. So I got to write in. And I didn't have to worry, you know, if my vote was going to be the deciding vote between, you know – Joe Biden and Donald Trump. I see Trump. what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Okay, I wasn't following that first. You know, if you're in Ohio or or you're in Pennsylvania or you're in Wisconsin or or Arizona, one of the one of these swing states, it's a different story. You know, yeah. it, it feels different. I voted in Pennsylvania when I was yeah. in college. Like I, that vote felt different because I'm like, wait, this. I one used really to vote in matters. Ohio. Um, and, yeah. and, and Ohio's always been a swing state. You know. But if I'm not in a swing state, especially, I'm going to do what I want because that sends a message too. My thing is, if you want to protest, cast a protest vote. Don't not vote. I see what you're saying. Yeah, I know I'm going to be voting in the next election. This was this one was this was a little bit of a bridge too far, and I did also look at it like this is going to be a clusterfuck of an election because it's mid-pandemic and everything, and I didn't want to well, write in people. Yeah, and, and let's be honest. How representative are two 80-year-olds? <laughs> Not at all, and that's the other thing. It's like just that alone. It's like 
You have an 80-year-old billionaire and, and you have an 80-year-old career politician. It's nuts. It's nuts. Neither one of them like could probably tell you the price of milk. You know. It's <laughs> a good way to put it. <laughs> like and and this is our representation, you know. This is it. but also I'll tell you it's kind of funny when you actually sit down and and, and you get to meet and talk with these people and, and you know you this is one of the things we need to stop this tribalism and and this is one of the things I hope psychedelics will accomplish in in the long run is we just need to sit down and talk yeah and not believe that if you disagree with me you are either a inherently stupid or b inherently evil because guess what that's how both sides look at all of this you haven't been on twitter enough (laughs) (laughs) no but but it's funny you know i am a guy and and right now i'll be honest i'm fairly politically agnostic you i when you do the work that i do and, and you work with both parties you see good in both parties you also see the complete bullshit in both parties and the games that they play um and 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 so you know i'm there's there's things where i'm very much to agree with the right and things i very much agree with the left and that's the majority of america yes and 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 this this fighting over it instead of just sitting down and talking you know you go back to to you know the, the 50s and you know a lot of the politics wasn't should we do this or sh- you know should people suffer or not should we do th- no it was we need a, we this is our problem we need to work together to solve it now the different parties had different ideas on how to solve it and a lot of mm-hmm. it was hey we should spend 10 million cuz that's what it's going to cost and some people are like well let's just give it 20 million you know things like that those are those are absolutely policy discussions to have but the other thing you had was you know, politics ended at, at, at the country's shores. Foreign policy mm. was the domain of the president. And there was was not a lot, you know, it, of dissent, shall, shall I say. You know, it, it wasn't, hey, the midterms are coming up and we can say this. And, yeah, it might damage our reputation with a whole bunch of allies and potentially cause World War Three. But, you know, there's elections to win. Huh. I I never made that. I mean, I wasn't alive, but I, you know, from what I've seen, I never made that distinction. But it's a really relevant, like, little silo to go into because I was listening to a podcast, I don't know, a few months ago, but it was an older podcast. My friend Danny did it with this reporter from the New York Times who, like, broke the whole MK Ultra thing back mm-hmm. in the day. Yep. And he talked about having a beer with Jimmy Carter after he left office down in South America because he was covering like the South American unit for the New York Times at the time. Carter mm-hmm. was down there. They knew each other, so they sit down. And he was it was a few years after, and he was saying, you know, now that you're removed, what what are your thoughts on the whole thing? Like how much can a, can a president really do? Like what do you think of the office, all that? And Carter said, you know, when I got into office, I called every living former president, and I just invited them in to – Get advice, as he should. I thought that was a great idea. And he said, the one who was the most effective in giving me a realistic view on this was actually Nixon. And the guy listens like, huh, okay, this is interesting. And he goes, so Nixon comes in and he says, 
All right, you got two sides of this whole job. You got domestic politics and you got foreign policy. Domestic politics are all going to fight with each other. Nothing really matters. You get one or two things done. Who the fuck cares? Let them all figure that out here. But foreign policy, foreign policy, you don't have to deal with Congress and you can actually do some shit. And so thinking about the power that that seat has when you're voting for the president, I do look at sometimes like our arguments all coming on very important things, but like, you know, healthcare and and social politics and taxes and across the spectrum here. And then we, we're not thinking enough like, okay, well, how's this person going to deal with Saudi Arabia? How are they going to deal with Russia? What's their thoughts on China? You know, you get one or two hits on that, but a lot of it comes back to the whole domestic thing. Well, you know, going back to Nixon, and it's funny how often I, I talk about and use Nixon given <laughs> he resigned in Watergate and all that. <laughs> but also, like, I'm from Cleveland, and where pollution was so bad and we kept setting our rivers on our river on fire so many times that Richard Nixon had to found the EPA. Um, and most Republicans forget that Nixon created the EPA and it was entirely because Cleveland kept setting its river on fire. Um, but also Nixon went to China Mm. and you look at how that was treated versus say by the media, by other politicians, et cetera. Versus, say, Trump going to North Korea or Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan. Mm. Um, You know, one of the things in the military that you deal with is there's a thing called a CODEL, um, C-O-D-E-L, Congressional Delegation. Um, Most of the ones I've seen have been in, you know, very much bipartisan. Um, And in part because that's the congressional oversight on foreign policy, like, you know. They can go talk to Germany and, and be like, hey, all this stuff we gave you, you're actually using it for that. And you're like, you know, they, there is a role for Congress and, and congressional delegations are, are actually really good. And I think it it allows for them to step out of that tribalism. Sadly, you've started seeing over the past six years a lot of non-bipartisan congressional delegations where it's mm. all one party or it's all the other. And it's done for political reasons, you know. And that's also what allows adversaries or adversaries or people who who have ill will towards the United States can influence what we do. How like, so, I agree it's bad, but how so given it not being bipartisan versus being just parties? Can you explain that for people? Uh, yeah, I, I can give you a couple of really great examples. Yeah, please. So, so you know, everybody thinks that, that, that Putin's a Republican and all this stuff. No, actually. You know what Putin's in it for? Putin. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. If if him, you know, inter- you know, if you read the Senate report on interference in the twenty twenty election that he did, he had people. He just sowed discord. Yes. Because splitting apart the United States and sowing discord is in his interest, and we we tend to look at our foreign policy in left versus right. Instead of what's in America's interest and the people that we're negotiating with, what's in their interest. Russia will always do what's in Russia's interest. Sure. And if that's helping Democrats, they will. If that's helping Republicans, they will. They don't care which party wins as long as Russia wins. You also have, uh, you know, swinging back into drug policy. Um, fentanyl. We, we, we have a... a epidemic of fentanyl poisonings 
All the fentanyl is coming from one location. China. And they're fighting the opium war in reverse. Because, see, here's the thing. These are fentanyl poisoning. Very few people go out and do fentanyl to do fentanyl. Most of the time, it's adulterated drugs sold on the black market. Like, nobody goes and buys meth or cocaine thinking there's fentanyl in it. No. There was there was a book a few years ago, Fentanyl Inc., that this guy wrote by accident, if I remember correctly. He was, like, writing for something else. He was a culture reporter. I forget his name. I want to say it's Ben Westoff. I hope I got that right. I'll check it in a minute. But he was doing some interview on something totally different, and the subject came up. And this is maybe, like, 2014, 2015. And he started asking whoever he was talking to about it. He was like, holy shit. And the dude... I mean, he was a savage. He ended up deciding to go on his own undercover to China to see how easy on like reporting for what would become this book, Fentanyl Mm -hmm. Inc., to see how easy it was to get fentanyl and how cheap it was. And some dude basically took him into a lab and he goes, all right, how much you want? (laughs) He was like, uh. And nothing happens at that scale without the Chinese Communist Party knowing about it. Of course. They're they're all over. Some guys I'm going to have in from Vetpal, which is a bunch of veterans who are doing amazing work protecting elephants and, and rhinos over in Africa. Most of the end result is coming from Chinese buyers where publicly the government is saying no more ivory trade or no more whatever trade. And then privately, they're still – they're a part of it. Mm-hmm. They're, they're smuggling it out on, on planes as diplomats. It's but, crazy. But, but realize the Chinese Communist Party, which currently has warships surrounding Taiwan as we speak. Yeah. Um figured out that our war on drugs would allow them to wage war on the U.S. with drugs. Yes, they did. You know, it's interesting when you start looking at fentanyl as a global issue, because you can't. And here's why. EU has about half the population in the United States. We had, I believe it's 120,000 fentanyl deaths last year in the United States. So how many do you think the EU had? I don't know. 10,000. The UK is a little less than a third the US population. How many do you think they had? Well, less than 10,000. Roughly 2,000. Yeah. This is a a very uniquely American issue. Canada does have an issue with this, same thing, but that's in my my belief is because Canada's drugs come from the US. And so and, and Mexico's and I, right there. They can smuggle it through the cartels, and, and they do. But also a lot of the overdoses and deaths uh, involving fentanyl in uh, the U.K. actually stemmed from Americans bringing it into the U.K. <laughs> so, but, but you have a hundred but, – but let's compare that to 120,000 in the U.S. That's, that's, that's literally an opium war. It is. It, it's exactly what the British did to the Chinese you know, in the 1800s. They figured out they can sow chaos – tie up billions in, in resources and, and, and cause chaos in, in, in a superpower by selling cheap fentanyl to the cartels. And, and it's interesting because nobody really, you know, we talk about fentanyl, but we don't usually talk about China. If we're talking about fentanyl, it's about harm reduction or, or, or getting people who, who have abuse or addiction issues the help they need. Um, I, I absolutely agree with those. Or it's about the border. Well, if you stop China sending it, then fentanyl is no longer an issue. 
and the supply even after covid the supply chain is so much tied through china and everything so it's like there's all there's all these potential outlets they can use to do things like but this. they also got all, all the fentanyl and the analogs because we we do most of our pharmaceutical manufacturing in china yeah. uh, so so you know it, it this is where there is real world implications of all of this and this is where you know most people who get addicted to to opium you know opiates and things like that you know it it's a manifestation of of trauma you know they start taking it because they're legitimately in pain and they will do anything to make that pain go away for a little bit well then it becomes uncontrollable and this is where you know psychedelics uh be it mdma psilocybin lsd ibogaine you know and now there's a whole bunch of stuff that's a bunch of numbers and letters that i can't even remember um but you know they they don't heal your trauma psychedelics are a tool and they're a tool that puts the mind body and spirit in the place it needs to be where the therapy can actually work and this is where there's a difference between just going and, and doing drugs, you know, or, or doing psychedelics for, for a spiritual experience or to have fun or whatever. And, and I like I don't have a problem with that either. But if you're looking at healing trauma, this is where you need to do integration. You need to do the therapy aspect. Otherwise, it's just going and having fun. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> um, but you're, you're seeing more and more people. I mean, Dan Bongino, like three days ago posted on a big long video on Facebook saying he he's considering taking psychedelics because he needs them. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but, but also, you know, he's a secret service agent. Yeah. Um, he was in law enforcement his whole career. He said he suffers from depression. Um, that doesn't surprise me, but you know, they can help him. They can help lots of people. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that like you're going to become a peacenik hippie. If you go do psychedelics, I mean, Tucker Max is a huge proponent of MDMA assisted therapy. Tucker Max. I hope they serve beer in hell. I'm not familiar with this. Oh, wow. No. Oh, yeah. Am he, I blanking right now? Yeah. He, he's I'm kind of the guy who started the whole blogging thing. Tucker Max. Yeah. He got maybe, but I don't know. No, he I got he got in tons of trouble because he originally like his first book was basically about him going out and shenanigans and hooking up and all this stuff mm. and, and getting drunk and all this stuff. And you know, now he you know he's married, has like three or four kids, something like that. He's and he said you know, and, and it's true because and, and I say say it as well. You know, I, I've got a nineteen year old stepson, Joey Monteleone, uh, great kid. And, you know, I know how shitty a father I was when I had PTSD. Mm -hmm. And I know how good a father I am now that I don't. Um, and, you know, you, you have all these people coming out that you wouldn't expect. You know, if AOC came out and said, hey, I think a psychedelics help with mental health, that's kind of one of the more AOC things you can say. Having Dan Crenshaw stand up on, on the House floor and, and give right. a three-minute floor speech talking about how psychedelics can help veterans and others, you know, suffering from uh, mental injuries, you know, that's a game changer. And, and one of the fears I have is we see how tribalistic we are. And there are people who want this to stay in the counterculture. They want this to be a left-wing thing. 
the problem and it's frustrating because you can't get it done that way no you've got to have both sides it's got to be bipartisan and it's funny because i don't have to agree with everything they agree with if they agree on this and they'll vote the right way cool because it's still the right decision it's well said man i, I completely agree but before we go to like where all the legislation stands, which is a very important part of this conversation, I do want to go through your full personal experience, which we've at least hinted at today. So <laughs> we, we cut off on some nice tangents there. But going back to Iraq, which is where immediately afterwards, as you had said at some point, you had some PTSD issues when you came back. You were on that base for a full year. And they were dropping mortars every day, and you at least were able to walk away without, you know, injuries or, you know. The oh, worst I still case. have a TBI. You still have what? Traumatic brain injury. Right. Is that from practicing on the base, or did you no, also no, that, get some more there? Yeah, that was that, so. So that was from Iraq, as well as all the joint damage that I have, four her herniated discs in my back, knees right. are shot, all that. Now, some of that is just being in the military. Sure. Um, some of that's being being in Iraq. But but no, I mean, I don't have a Purple Heart. I've got a, you know, got all my limbs, all, all of that stuff. Uh, the TBI gets interesting. Um, people think, you know, brain injury just makes you stupid. Um, it actually affects a whole bunch of weird things. Um, sure. And this is where not, you know... TBI and PTSD have a lot of overlapping symptoms. And so not having PTSD now, I know exactly which ones are TBI and which ones are PTSD. So, for example, f actually falling asleep is a TBI issue for me. Staying asleep is entirely a, was entirely a PTSD issue. Mm. Um, and it has to do with the part of my brain that says, hey, dummy, you're hungry, go eat. Or, hey, dummy, you're tired, go to sleep, just is broken. Uh, it's one of the various weird parts of my brain that's just weirdly disconnected along with giant gaps in memory um but you know so it, it, i i still do have that um but the ptsd is gone and my ptsd became an issue right after i came home um within two months i had a suicide attempt jesus yeah. so when you were there though i'm just trying to put myself and i can't but like doing my best to put myself in in that kind of position i'm just imagining what what did you what did they call it again? Mortaritaville? Yeah. Where you were? So all these mortars are are falling every day around you. It's just like it becomes a part of your of the weather, basically outside. Yeah, and and it's kind of funny. So our first night there, um so when we first got there, you know, one of the first things you do when you arrive is they gotta figure out where you're gonna sleep. <laughs> so we 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 moved into Tent City. Because uh, the unit we were falling in on um, hadn't left their their per what would what was going to become our permanent housing yet, so you know we had to spend like two weeks in in the tents. Well, interestingly enough, Tent City got in all the time. Um, so our first night there, you know, incoming alarms go off, the C Rams uh, counter rocket and mortar fire, which is actually phalanx systems that auto track mortars and rockets and they're really loud light up the whole sky pull up a youtube video there it's kind of fun to watch what's it called uh c ram c c dash r a m and you said it was a phalanx yeah that's what the navy calls it the army calls it c ram that's 
see. I probably can't put this in the corner of the screen. Yeah, it's like a 25 millimeter Gatling gun that fires an un- insane amount of <laughs> rounds a second. I just want to know what you're talking about. So people, if you're listening or watching right now, you can you can check this on YouTube. I do have a video up. But uh, I'll just see it real quick. So you've got mortars landing. You've got oh, one of these. I got a plane now. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, okay, go ahead. Um, I will also say one of the funniest pictures of a phalanx I ever saw was they, they made a giant fabric covering for the radar dome over it that looks like a that looks like a minion. <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah, actually if you go to like uh C RAM on Google and go through images you'll run into it. It's it's the minion C RAM? Yes. That I can put up. Oh so uh but those things are going off, lighting up the night sky, you know, mortars are, are Oh my god, are, are impacting and all this stuff. And, you know, we get put into a we get put into a formation so that in the middle of a mortar attack so that they can do, you know, an accountability check. I'm like, we're all gonna die. An accountability check? So after there's an attack one of the so every unit has to do accountability to to, to make sure that nobody's injured, hurt, and missing. Mm. Um, so because the last thing you want is for everybody to be like, okay, everybody's fine, and not know there's some guy in a ditch somewhere. Right. Um, so th- you have to do 100 percent accountability. So if you're on base and you're not near your unit, and you know as soon as the all clear is given, you have to immediately check in with your unit and say, hey, I'm good. Um, so they're doing this accountability. In a formation, which is, you know, a giant rectangle, Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the middle of a mortar attack, one mortar, we're all going to die. That's the first day. And we're all, like, I, you know, we're all freaking out. Like, it's insane. It wasn't very long where, like, it goes off and you get up in the middle of the night. You're like, damn it. I got to put on flip-flops and go over to the bunkers. I'm just tired. And it's really weird. Oh, so you did have bunkers, like, underground for everyone to go to? They weren't under, They weren't underground. Um, they were just. They they were basically concrete used, flipped on top of themselves. So it's like a little concrete tunnel. Um, okay. It, it they they will protect. Um, you you can also like. There's also hardened buildings and things like that. Um, you know. So they had room for five thousand people when you were about to be under attack to be able to try to get to. And well, they could it, all go. Yeah, it wasn't one giant bunker. It was just like there were bunkers everywhere. Got it. Okay. Um, and they were just like, honestly, like concrete, concrete culverts that were big and you just go sit in them. Um, I don't know how much protection they provide on an absolute direct hit, but you know, the biggest problem is it lands, it explodes, it throws shrapnel, you know, a hundred feet or whatever. Well, if you're in there, none of that's going to hurt you. So, mm. um, but it, it's interesting because a lot of the problems like hypervigilance and all these things are assets when you're over there. Then you come home and, right. you know, you can add on top of that the, the relationship issues and my, my ex leaving and all of that. Um, but Did that happen from the first deployment or Iraq? I, I only have one deployment to Iraq. Yeah, cause, but you had the deployment in, in to Japan. Japan. Yeah, I was single the whole time. Okay, so yeah, when yeah. you – I missed that. So when you were talking about that, you weren't talking about that one. You were talking yeah, about after I, Iraq. Correct. Okay, so that's the same first wife. Yeah. Got it. Um, and we'd been married seven years or something like that at Mm. that point. Um, but you know, came home, had an ungodly amount of problems, Uh, nightmares every night. You know, it was weird. I, I, I wouldn't go upstairs and sleep. I I ended up sleeping on the couch every night, drinking at least a bottle of vodka. Um, and, and I lived close enough to Fort Bragg that I could 
actually hear impacts when they were doing artillery occasionally. Mm. But I also knew that I was hearing impacts that weren't there. And I'd hear helicopters that weren't there. Um, And so, you know, Christmas Eve 2006, I I went to a bar that I like to go to before I went to Iraq and uh, started drinking. Had had gotten about halfway through my second drink, so I wasn't trash or anything like that. And uh, I heard the church bells from Midnight Mass. I'm like, I need to be there, not here. So I walked over to Sacred Heart Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, and was told. And on the way there, like all this, these different things just started hitting me, and I was bawling my eyes out by the time I got there. And so. You know, go to go in, and there's a dude in front of the door. And I'm like, wow, this will be a rowdy service. <laughs> and he's like, we're full. I'm like, what do you mean you're full? I'm like, he's like, we're at capacity. I'm like, okay, I just got back from Iraq. I really need to just go in. He goes, you can come back in the morning. So I went and I sat at the War Memorial in downtown Raleigh and uh, was thinking of the best most impactful way to take my life what made what made was it that guy was it that moment of like rejection that just put you over the top or was it something you had been maybe not recognizing you were thinking about it was self-hatred thinking i was a bad person um for things that happen overseas that i won't get into um you know the rejection of coming home to nothing the idea that I got off the plane after serving my country for a year and there was no one there. Um, you know, the, in that couple with the rejection, you know, I was raised Catholic, wasn't ever very religious, but like that was the place, you know, I, that was supposed to be the safe place. So then I'm like, wait a minute, these briefings, they keep saying, if you think this way, go to the hospital. So I got in my car and I drove to Womack Army Medical Center and I went to the ER. And I said, I'm going to kill myself. So they put me under suicide watch and then uh, had a doctor come in talk to me. He's like, you know, it's a holiday. I'm like, yeah. By now it's like 2 a.m. <laughs> on Christmas morning. And he's like, do you have guns at home? I'm like, yeah, a lot. He's like, do you have ammo for those guns? I'm like, a fuck ton. He's like, when you get home, I want you to give those to your neighbor. Go wake your neighbor up and give him your guns. Here's six Xanax. Don't take them all at the same time because it'll kill you. But there's no point in checking you in because nobody will be able to see you till after the holiday anyway. So, <laughs> so just go home and come back after the holiday. So I went home and I drank a bottle of vodka and I loaded a bread at nine millimeter and I put it to my temple and I pulled the trigger. And it was a squib load, meaning... There was a manufacturing defect in the in, in the round meant that there was no gunpowder. Holy shit. So, which also is really weird when you hear a pop and you think you just killed yourself and you're like, fuck, it's all still here. Um, and because it, it took a minute, it took like a second to realize that like there was a problem and it didn't work. That was one of five total since I got back. Um, one of five total attempts? Yeah, I put a gun to my head twice uh, and pulled the trigger. The second time was a broken spring. I tried to overdose and I've slit my wrist twice. But this was the first one. This was the first one. Christmas morning, 2006. 
My last one was November 3rd, 2013. So this is over a long period of time. So what after that, and it didn't work, what made you not reload the weapon and try again? Because my thought was, I can't even kill myself right. And at that point, I passed out. Um, I had four attempts, and then I had a friend of mine introduce me to a thing called cannabis. Huh. Uh, so at the age of 33, three years after I got back, after four suicide attempts, um, I tried cannabis for the first time. <laughs> How was that? Uh, it was fantastic. Um, it, it, it's it, it's a pretty funny story. I, I was I was single at the time. It, it, it was a longtime friend of a friend of mine who I hadn't seen in forever, and they were like, "Hey, do you want to go back to my place and you know smoke a bowl and hook up?" <laughs> my mind, I'm like, I want to hook up, and I've never tried weed, so this sounds like <laughs> a fun day for me. Um, but the thing I, I did that was interesting is, so I went and and got high as hell and. Had a lot of fun, and the next day, I didn't think of killing myself for the first time in a while, like mm. three years, because you I- You were thinking about it every day? Every day. Even if I had a great day, it would pop into my head driving home. I should just hit the accelerator and slam into a wall. I mean, you, you, you had tried four times at that point, so it's not like you hadn't tried or anything. Right. That's a lot. But every day for like three years, yeah. then you do math, and you're like- Man, all those days except for four of them, you fought it off, or like you just didn't do it, or you didn't try. Oh, uh, there were so many times I'd stand on a bridge. Oh, I thought about it. I planned it constantly. One of the ways I dealt with my suicidal ideology was I'd plan it for the future. I'd say, okay, July 4th, that's my day. And I'd plan the whole thing out exactly where, how, all of it. Were you thinking about? death with it at, and what that meant or was it just i need to make whatever this is stop and I, so i want to make an event out of it um i knew death would stop it and i figured i didn't if if i'm gonna go out i'm gonna send a message to the people that come after you who are ignored like you were to the VA, to the government, right. to everybody that this is a problem and people need help. Um, but it but it was literally every day I, I, I was thinking of killing myself. Are you, you working during all this? Uh, started when I first got back trying, kept getting fired, <laughs> mm. kept having problems. Um, actually, I got fired from a job because I went to the VA instead of killing myself. And they fired you for that, for not showing up? Yeah. Although I called beforehand. I said, hey, I can't come to work today. I'm not feeling well. I need to go to the VA. They're like, well, what, what's wrong? I'm like, I'm going to hurt myself, and I need to go talk to somebody. Like, and they fired you? They're like, go take care of it. And then the doctor called them and said, hey, he's got a doctor's note. He's, he's off for two days. And they're like, okay. So after the two days were up, they call me up. They're like, hey, that laptop you have, we, we need to do some repair work on it. So uh, we need you to bring it in. I did, and that's when they fired me. Oh, my God. And part of it was their fear was I would lose my, my, my shit and hurt them or hurt other employees. And that's something that, like, it, not every veteran has PTSD. It's like 
I mean, it's a high percentage, like 20%, but that means 80% don't. But there's a lot of employers who think they all do and that they're all going to go postal. (laughs) And so that's how you have a lot of employment issues. It's got to be a better amongst way. veterans. It's got to be a better way to handle that. And and so, you know, I used cannabis for five years, and it was very helpful. Um, it, it kept me away from actually committing suicide. Um, you and were I, still thinking about it, though. I was, but you know, when things got bad, I'd go smoke a joint and go to sleep. Mm. You know, I also had a service dog who kept me alive on many occasions. There was many, many a time where I didn't jump off the bridge because I didn't know who would take care of her. Cause my mm. love for her was greater than my love for myself. Wow. It's a special dog. It is. And, uh, I had her for 14 and a half years. And the good thing is she actually got to retire at about 10 years old and no longer be a service dog and just be a family pet. Wow. And not a lot of service dogs get to do that. Um, and, and I'll tell you, it, it was hard and a lot of grief when she passed. Um, and she passed in my arms at home. It's kind of funny because she waited for, for my kid to, to go on a trip with my second wife. Because mm-hmm. um, we, me, me and, and uh, Olivia had talked and like we knew it was coming. We just didn't know when. And, you know, one of her questions is, hey, if something happens when you're, you know, traveling to D.C., what do you want me to do? And, you know, her her and Joey were going on a trip to Ohio, and they were gone a few hours. And she went. But also, I had no idea. I fully anticipated that I would have to be hospitalized when she passed. Jesus. Um, because even though I went through the MDMA therapy and all of that and things were great, I always had her as a crutch. She was always in the background. And having that, um, you know, go kept, away. Kept, I, di- I didn't know if it would break me. It kept you alive, as you said. Yeah, and, and you know. What was the dog's name? Becky. What kind of dog? Uh, Brittany Spano. Her name was Becky Lou Becky. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And uh, I actually, uh, in May of last year, because uh, she also passed, like, July t- of 2020, right? In the of COVID. Mm. <laughs> so, um but I, last year I got a, I, I got a, a Boykin Spaniel, um, and her name is uh, Her Royal Highness Princess Rebecca II of Parker Riverside, <laughs> um, Becca for short. Um, That's awesome. Because, and, and she's a great dog, definitely not a service dog. She just loves everybody. Awesome dog. That works. But I, I could see a little bit of Becky in her, and in part because Boykins have a little bit of Brittany Spaniel in them, but... You know, and it's really weird because, you know, Becky spent her life taking care of me. And now, you know, I get to just take care of this little pup. Oh, she's fucking awesome, awesome, man. That's such a good way to look at it, too. And thank God Becky was there. Oh, I I wouldn't be alive if if it weren't for her. Yeah. Um, People that don't. Dogs are just unbelievably special creatures, man. And like that, you know, they say man's best friend. They don't say that enough. It is the truest thing ever. And it's like, you know, they're here for such a short time in the context of how long we can live. But, you know, whether it's a service dog who they do amazing work, seeing eye dog, stuff like that, or just, you know, the dog who's the family dog who loves you. There's 
There is nothing quite like that. And to see the context of a very full story that you have here, years and years and years between first going into the military, going into the Marines, and then eventually even the Army and everything, getting back, being alone, you know, your wife leaves you, which that that whole thing is crazy that that happened right when you were coming back too. And then dealing with all these things and you have an animal there and nothing else. You're losing these jobs because people don't understand. You're going through all these attempts to kill yourself. You're planning it out, all this stuff. But the dog is the thing that you have such a love for that it still gives – it still gave a meaning to the world. Even if it didn't give meaning to you, Becky gave a meaning to the world because you were afraid of what would happen if you weren't here. Yeah. And now – it's come full circle, and we're going to get into everything as to why, but like it's come full circle that luckily you do love life and, and have a great life now and everything, and, and that legacy of, of your dog is, is really one of the driving things, it sounds like, that, that was behind that. It's so cool, man. That and, and you know, one of the things that I, I talk about a lot is there's a lot of people who have PTSD, and they use it as an excuse to be a shitty human. Mm. And I get the underlying psychology on that but also you know if if you have ptsd if you have a problem even even you know when i was contemplating suicide every day i i worked and i tried to get better um you know i tried whatever they wanted me to try they're like this will work and it never did um but were you conscious of how you were with other people or was were you constantly living outside yourself a little bit um it kind of depended on the moment. There were mm. times where, like, I'd flip my shit and everything seemed rational, and later I'm like, oh, wow. Mm. Um, and sometimes, like, even in the moment, I'd be like, oh, wow. Um, you know, and, and there was a lot of stuff, like, if I saw somebody in specifically in traditional Muslim garb with a backpack, I would literally cross the street. Um, I would avoid them, you know at all costs because I saw them as a threat. My body reacted to that person, no matter how innocent and, and, and perfectly wonderful a human being I'm sure they were. And I knew that in my brain. You did while it was happening. Yes. I would literally tell myself that person is perfectly fine and normal there. This is not a threat, but my body reacted. And the only way to make that panic attack go away was to remove myself from that situation and create distance. And, you know, and it was weird because like be walking down the street with, you know, wife and kid and we all have to cross the street for, for, you know, cause I'm freaking out. Um, you know, crowds, things like that didn't help. Um, and you know, the auditory hallucinations were kind of weird where you hear things that really aren't there. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd see smoke that wasn't there, which was kind of weird too. Um, but, you know, I, I used that cannabis to, to help for five years. And then I met my second wife um, who lived in South Carolina. So you were single. You were single for like a big chunk of that. Wow. Okay. Yeah, because having a relationship is kind of hard. Yeah, yeah I, I figured. But you were saying you were talking yeah. about the second wife. I wasn't sure when that happened. So uh, and, and I moved down to South Carolina. And, and the problem was, she, you know, she had my now stepson. Um and she was afraid that if I got caught with weed in South Carolina, where it's really illegal, like mm. they keep getting sued for doing body cavity searches on black people oh on the side of the road. In South Carolina? In South Carolina, yeah. Um, 
So it, weed is super illegal there. Um, and her Still? F- yeah, very. Come on. So uh, her fear was that if I got caught with cannabis, that her ex-husband would try to take her kid away. Total, very reasonable logic. Very fair, yeah. You know, so I stopped. So yeah. I stopped smoking cannabis. What year is that? That would be 2013. Uh, January mm. 2013, to be specific. And I, I went back to the VA. They had me on at 1.42 pills a day. 42? What kind of pills? <laughs> I'll have to send you the list. Like, And it was crazy because they had me on five different pills because I had a quarter-sized herniation in my uh, back that they I, I was awaiting surgery on, and they didn't want to prescribe me opiates. So they gave me like five weird things as painkillers that interacted with each other. And then they interacted with my mental health meds and et cetera, et cetera, to the point where I would literally just pass out. And, you know, it, it was a concern because at one point I was driving and I literally all, barely got off the side of the road to, uh, off the road to stop Jesus. before I passed out. And so like that wasn't working. And they were cycling me through multiple meds without tapers. Um, tapers? Can you explain that? So with a lot of SSRIs and mental health meds, mm-hmm. uh, there's a thing called a taper, which is you have to build up slowly and you have to come off them slowly. Uh, you know, I SSRIs totally suck. I get why people hate them. Stopping them cold turkey is very dangerous. And that's like, for people out there, that's like Prozac. And, yeah, and Prozac. Uh, Zoloft is, is, yep. is huge in the VA. Um. But that actually caused my brain to go haywire. I'm um, sure. And so November forty two pills. Yeah. So within ele- <laughs> within eleven months of, of stopping to use cannabis, I, I had another suicide attempt and slipped my wrists. And this is one of the things about cannabis: it is great. It is palliative. It is not a cure. Right. It's a mask. It, as soon as you know, it doesn't deal with any of the underlying issues. It only. You know, it, it, it mitigates the symptoms, and it is very good at that. Um, but how it, often were you smoking? Like uh, how many times a day? Oh, uh, all day. So you were just in a constant state of like solid high. Nah, I wouldn't say that because what I preferred was like a vape cartridge, so I'd mm. self titrate and and not be super stoned all day. But yeah, I, I was buzzed all the time. Um, and. You know, sometimes if things got bad, yeah, I'd smoke like a whole joint and go to, you know. And and I also knew, and this is where it was interesting, and I always kind of wondered if if I could have managed things better if it it was legal under a medical program. Um, Because I was in North Carolina where it was also illegal. So, you know, I I didn't get to pick strains. I didn't get to pick indica or sativa. I got what a dude had in a bag in a parking lot. So, you know, when I could... uh, Indica knocks me out. Like Indica in the couch. <laughs> Completely. Yeah, no, same, same. Um, I and so I, I would have Indica, and if things got really bad, I'd smoke smoke an Indica joint and literally just go to bed. When you say if they, that's the second time you, you did that, so what would be the context of things got bad? Like what type? What were you still in 2013? Were you still constantly having these? I see smoke where there's not smoke type hallucinations. That was still all going on. All that was going on. Um, and actually, the cannabis didn't really help with that part. Um, but it did keep it. It did lower anxiety. It helped reduce panic attacks. 
Um, so it kept you calm when you would see that, basically. Yeah, it, it kept me calm, and it kept me like on this side of, of an actual suicide attempt. And when I say things get bad, it's I'm going to jump off a bridge. Mm. Um, but is there a specific trigger that would um, lead to that? Like if I had to go do something in a giant crowd, um, and there was a lot, a lot of so another weird thing is black socks. Black socks. So mm -hmm. somebody wearing black socks in a suit is fine. Somebody wearing black socks in like athletic shorts and a t-shirt. I could think of a few people that did that. Sure. So that is a very like not American thing. People, people in Europe, people in the Middle East do that quite a bit in part because, you know, we're a pretty wealthy country. So we can have all these different colored socks and all this stuff. And, you know, if you live in Iraq, you may only have three pairs and so the idea of oh i'm changing my i'm going from dress shoes to you know tennis shoes i should change from black socks to white socks or something like that mm. it just doesn't happen um but so we were wearing them like i remember we would wear yeah, the yeah. high top black like nike socks with basketball shoes like to play basketball so you're talking about like when you would see that i guess um that that was part of it but it, it, it was more like just i mean i don't like go play basketball so, so i didn't really see that um but no like if 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 i was at universal studios and there's a guy in line in front of me who had you know dark skin and was wearing black socks and tennis shoes there mm. it would freak me out um you know gunfire uh fireworks i mean south carolina in the fourth of july is is worse than mortaritaville um I mean, you have people who make pipe bombs all year, just set them off on the 4th of July. Um, and actually, 2013, 4th of July in South Carolina, was was sitting in a house. Um, and, and, or sorry, this was 2014. Um, was, was, was The entire neighborhood was, was going off with fireworks so much, my house was literally shaking. Mm. Um, and I was in the walk-in closet in body armor with my service dog thinking I was in a bunker in Iraq. Um, I saw you talk about this one and particularly with the psychiatrist during some of the tapes of your sessions. Mm -hmm. So was that like, was this literally right before you did that then? Cause you did, yeah, you started I did, yeah. in 2014, right? Yeah. So I took, so I, uh, taking one small step back, I came back. Uh, I came came off orders from Iraq, November twenty second of two thousand six. Mm -hmm. I took my first dose of MDMA, November twenty second, two thousand fourteen. So, when this July fourth event was happening, did you know you were going to be in that trial at this point? I'm just curious. No, I don't believe so. Okay. I, I mean, okay. I, it was a possibility, but I believe I had just had like maybe the intro call with them. Got it. So it's every. The point is, you're off cannabis. Everything is in full swing again. All these different triggers are happening. We probably go. It sounds like oh, yeah. we go through a lot of them if we if oh, we yeah. wanted to. But the bottom line is, like things are not good. Mm -hmm. So when did that? I would also get triggered and not have any clue why. Like with what kinds thing. of things? I don't know. That's the, that's the point. I could literally just be walking down the street and lose my shit and not even realize know what triggered it. But it wouldn't be like. I'm just going to make something up. It wouldn't be something specific 
that you don't know why it's like if someone's like cutting no, an no, apple it, and you it, don't know why that's triggering you, but it would be the same thing every time like someone's cutting an apple. It no, the, like no, that. these were times where like I, I would get triggered, but for for no discernible reason, just out of nowhere, right? Okay, and and, and I do understand how weird things can be kind of triggering. So, for example, um, uh, my son actually now has PTSD. Uh, he almost died on a cruise ship. Jesus, and he had to be medevaced by the Coast Guard on a helicopter. What happened? Uh, he had an internal GI bleed and lost 50% of his blood supply in about an hour. Holy shit. Yeah, I thought he died in my arms. Where was that? It was on a cruise, but where? Uh, off the coast of the Bahamas. What, did he get, like, hit or something? Like, internal bleeding type deal? Or, and he didn't uh, know no, it? No, so, 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 without getting too much into his medical, yeah, yeah. <laughs> medical history, um, what happened was, uh, he has suffered from migraine headaches, and uh, doctors said, hey, just give him ibuprofen or Tylenol. And it literally ate a hole through his stomach. Holy so, shit. Um, he no states and says. Um, but Holy shit. So, so That's he, scary. Yeah. So now he has PTSD. And so one of his big triggers is flying. Like, not ha not just flying on helicopters, but like even on a regular airplane. Because he's being, he remembers, I guess, the whole matter. Well, and and it's 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 kind of funny because, you know, uh, Olivia thought, who's now my second ex-wife, but, um, <laughs> uh, you know, she's like, well, he's just scared of flying, and I'm like, it's not that he's scared of flying. Explaining how planes work isn't going to solve this. This is he's being triggered, and it's taking him back to when he when he right. almost died. Um, and I will say mad props to the Coast Guard crew. Um, they flew through two through a storm twice, once to come get Joey and then once to get him to uh, the hospital in Miami. Wow. And the Coast Guard and actually um, part of the reason the Coast Guard came out is because nobody else would. So I called a politician and they got me a helicopter. That's amazing. Wow. When was that? Oh. That would have been 2019. Okay. So, and you were obviously, you said he almost died in your arms. You were right there experiencing yeah. all this. Okay. Oh, I've had a lot of, a lot of stuff happen actually since I went through MDMA therapy. I had a, a gentleman uh, drown in the lake behind my house, dove in, pulled him out, did CPR on him for like 20 minutes till EMS arrived. There was a shooting on Hanover Street in Charleston. I ran towards that, did CPR on the gunshot victim. Um, neither of them survived um, and Christ. died in my arms. Um, just this past Memorial Day, I saw a guy get who was on a pedal bike get hit by an F-250 coming off Folly Beach, stop to help him. Uh, fortunately, he made it, at least to my knowledge. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've, I've had a, those things happen, and, and actually, I still don't have PTSD. Um, also, over the past five months, I've gone to Moldova, Romania, Poland, and Ukraine on humanitarian support missions. You were in you. All right, you know what? we'll get to that later because I don't want to lose this. I'll be on that all day. We'll, we'll, we'll get to Ukraine. But when did so? You've said it. You did the first treatment in 2014. When did it come on your radar that this was a possibility that you could treat PTSD with MDMA? So uh, when I was hospitalized. Um, to be released, you have to have a suicide plan, a prevention plan. And one of the things that I asked for, the, actually the only thing I asked for, of all the things I asked for, this was the only thing the VA actually did. Um, and that was, I, I said, I need weekly counseling. I need to see someone for an hour at least once a week. You said that? Yes. 
Oh, good for you. And they're like, okay. Um, and the, the, my, my psychiatrist who, who was the head of mental health for the Charleston BA actually did a fantastic job. Um, that's not the same one who ended up. No. Okay. Got it. Um, you know, she, she, and she came, I went there for, for an appointment, um, sometime in 2014 in, uh, something was going on on the inpatient floor and she comes down. She's like, Hey, I got this, something going on. I need to take care of it. If you need meds, you know, you can sit with my intern and I'll put them in and you can pick them up when you leave because I, I have, you have to be seen for me to renew the prescription. This, I just want to be clear on timeline too, so that yeah. I understand and everyone out there following you would say you went off cannabis in January, 2013, yeah. right? And then you went, you, Attempted to commit suicide by slitting your ribs in November 2013. Correct. Is that right? Okay. So that's when you were hospitalized. That's Correct. what you're talking about. Yes. And when you went to leave, that's when you asked for I need weekly to see therapy. someone once. And then and then I got okay. and then I got weekly therapy and they got were it. actually really good about it. But th this one week in early 2014, she came down and she's like, "Hey, I got to take care of this." She's like, "We can either just do next week, or I can see if I can schedule you later in the week, or you know, sit with the intern and in the meds." I'm like all right, cool. I'll sit with the intern. I'll pick my meds up and then, you know, I'll talk to you next week. She's like, all right, cool. Go sit down with the intern. And I'm glad I made that choice. Um, you know, part of it was at the time it'd take about an hour and a half to find a parking space at the Charleston VA. And I had already invested a lot of time. I wasn't just going to go home, but, uh, she slid this piece of paper, full piece of paper across the desk that was folded in half and, and said, don't open this until you leave. Cause I'm not supposed to tell you about this. And I'm like, is this a phone number or like, <laughs> what's going on here? And I open it up and it says Google MDMA PTSD. Wow. And so I did. And I'm like, well, this is cool. Um, and where did things stand at the time? Like, was uh, that a thing yet for veterans or was it the earliest permutations of the trials? Um, so it was a uh, phase two trial. Okay. Um, and interestingly enough, it was going on in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, just across the bridge. So open to anybody. Uh, so this, so so I called them and I was like, "Hey, not open to anybody." There was a clinical trial, so um, that's what I would have thought. Yeah. But and so I called them and I'm like, "Hey, I'm kind of crazy," and they they're like, well, "What do you mean?" And I explain it. And they're like, "Oh, okay, cool. You're kind, you're our kind of crazy." Um, <laughs> went in and talked with them and 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 you know passed all the interviews. Did did a full physical. I mean, it's clinical trial, so there's a whole bunch of weird FDA stuff. Um. Did a, did a full psyche eval and all of that and was accepted as the 26th person in a 25-person study featuring veterans and first responders. The reason they expanded it is because two people did not finish and dropped out of the trial because they, they felt that they had completely healed after one or two doses and did not need the third, second or third dose. So there was room for one more and that was me and the door slammed behind me wow that was some fate right there yeah and this was i'm gonna mispronounce her name if i try but Mid it was the husband and wife yeah and uh, michael and annie Midhoff. okay so th it was really cool because they're recording all this for the study purposes and yeah so, so if you're in a clinical trial 100 percent of the stuff's recorded on multiple cameras um and, and one of the things that's used for is compliance to ensure that they're actually right. doing, following the protocol that like there's nothing untoward going on, et cetera, et cetera. So they, this was all what was featured in Michael Pollan's new documentary mm -hmm. on Netflix in episode three. 
called How to Change Your Mind. It is fantastic. Everyone should watch it. And he wrote a book of the same name. Yes. So this was a follow-up to that. And so they had the two doctors in there profiled, and then they used your sessions as an example where we get to see you take an MDMA, <laughs> tripping balls, but have an unbelievably re uh, revelatory, basically regular sessions with them except you're on mdma talking through all your experience and everything and then you were great in it by the way like going through Thanks. and explaining things now and what your perspective is but it's like doing therapy while being hugged by everyone who loves you in a bathtub full of puppies licking your face that you didn't say that in the documentary so i'm glad <laughs> we got that here that's great so you get connected with these two they had from what it looks like in the documentary and what they said they had been working on potential treatments or ideas around MDMA for a long time, right? So uh, MDMA was originally invented in the early 1900s by Merck Pharmaceutical. Um, it was one of the many steps along the way. They were trying to get the styptic uh, effect out of mescaline, um, uh, blood coagulation to stop bleeding. Mm, got um, it. But they put it on the shelf, right? Yeah, they put it on the shelf because, mm. like, I mean okay, yeah, somebody gets injured on the battlefield or something, you can't give them MDMA to make them stop bleeding. There's way better <laughs> solutions. Um, so it got put on the shelf. It got rediscovered uh, by uh, Sasha Shulgin um, in the 50s. Mm -hmm. Might have been late 40s. Um, and they started using it for therapy. And it was used for therapy, but like a lot of uh, of things, it, it escaped the lab, it escaped the therapist's office, and people started doing it at raves. Mm. And in the early 80s, there was a big spate of a bunch of rich white kids who went to raves and died um, because they didn't practice proper harm reduction. Um, proper what? Harm reduction. So they didn't hydrate. They didn't like take care uh, of themselves. Yeah. Yep. Um, and they overheated and, 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 and all of that. And so... Uh, the DEA proposed rescheduling MDMA to Schedule 1. And this is right in the heart of, like, when they were starting the war on drugs yeah, and all that. Well... Like, 84, 85? 85, but the war on drugs was started by Nixon, so, in the 70s. So, so the Controlled Substances Act had already passed. Marijuana, all that was all illegal. MDMA was added later. Wait, am I totally blanking right here? I always <laughs> thought of the war on drugs, and I've talked about it on this podcast before, so maybe I got this wrong every time. I thought the war on drugs was basically started by Reagan. Nixon. Nixon started it. Like, did he Reagan, use the words war on drugs? Uh, yeah. Really? Well, yeah, Nixon realized oh, he, could, that he, he couldn't go arrest hippies and, and black people who were causing problems, so he, he made weed and heroin and psychedelics and other things illegal so he could arrest the things that they used. That's why the drug war was started. And so it was hmm. ramped up by Reagan and much more so um by uh hw bush uh you know who infamously went and bought crack across from the white house <laughs> wait hw bush bought crack across well from the white okay house? they had an undercover dea agent go buy crack across the street from the white house <laughs> and then he held a press conference he like he from the oval office he held up a bag of crack it's the funniest thing in the world i to, do to have watch. to watch that uh but also you know wait is there, there <laughs> This is this is Bush one you're saying. Yes. George H W Bush, crack White House press conference. That dealer was sitting at home going hit the jackpot. And it was like a giant bag too. Oh, 
It's not there. I typed in HW too. Type in uh, tape. Type in uh, George Bush, Oval Office, bag of crack. <laughs> Let's see what happens. George H W Bush, Oval Office, bag of crack. Oh my God, we got it. <laughs> All right, hold on. Stick it on mute for a sec. Let's find the spot. It's a longer video. It's called 1989 Throwback George Bush Holds Huge Bag of Crack Cocaine. <laughs> All right, here we go. Oh, shit. Hold on. Here we go. It's behind you. Tonight, I'll tell you how many Americans are using illegal drugs. I will present to you our national strategy to deal with every aspect of this threat. And I will ask you to get involved in what promises to be a very difficult fight. This, this is crack cocaine seized a few days ago by drug enforcement agents in a park just across the street from the White House. <laughs> like, that's a big bag of crack. <laughs> I never saw that. It's, I love learning random shit on here that I've never heard of. Yeah. That's amazing. But, uh, but but no, so the DEA proposed making MDMA Schedule 1, and then uh, they were sued. Administrative law judge um, came down and said it should be scheduled, but it definitely has therapeutic value and, and should not be Schedule 1, so Schedule 2, Schedule 3, somewhere around there. DEA said, yeah, no, used emergency scheduling authority and made it illegal anyway on July 1st, 1985. In 1986, Rick Doblin started MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, to take MDMA through the FDA process. He's been working on this like his entire adult life. Yeah, 36 yeah, years. It's amazing. 36 years to get where we are right now, which is hopefully a year or two away from FDA approval. It for medicinal use under the correct. supervision of a psychiatrist. Got yes. It. Okay. Now, the good thing is he broke down a lot of walls. And literally wrote the manual on how to take Schedule One narcotics through the FDA model, um, which is why you see now psilocybin and some of these other drugs going through the same model. And they they won't take thirty six years; those will will be a lot quicker. But you know, hey, you got W holding a giant bag of crack. But also, let's not forget, Clinton ramped up the drug war too. Yeah. I mean, our the current president Joe Biden is the author of the Rave Act. You know. Uh, I'm not familiar with that. He he banned raves and all this because MDMA was was such a dangerous drug. He stood on the Senate floor and and talked about how MDMA was so dangerous it should never even be researched. And six days later, he voted to send me to Iraq. <sighs> you know, and and this is where it's frustrating Ooh. for me because you know Hunter Biden. Um, <laughs> no, 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 this isn't going to go anywhere where you think it will. No, no, I'm sorry, I just got no. Left. It's fine. Oh, uh, but Hunter Biden, uh, you know, we're all aware of some of his issues. Yeah. Um, and, and you know what? I, I have an enormous amount of empathy for Hunter because he was in the car when his mother and sister died. Yeah, and he was. That's everything that we've seen in the pictures and the, and the addiction issues he has faced. Um, you know, that is a manifestation of PTSD and what happened to him as, as a very young child. And I have the utmost empathy and compassion because I know how 
that happens very personally. It's happened to me. It's happened to friends of mine. And he went down to Mexico and he did Ibogaine treatment. Hunter did. Hunter did. In when was this? 2019. Can you explain Ibogaine treatment to people out there who don't know what that is? I will do the best I can. Um, it's something. High level. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Ibogaine is a West African root that has a psychedelic effect that is highly effective in uh, helping with PTSD, TBI, and addiction. In particular, it's highly effective with opiate use disorder. Um, and, and so he went down to Mexico and did Ibogaine therapy. Um, as a matter of fact, there's an organization of vets, veterans exploring treatment solutions that does the same thing. They provide grants to operators and others. So Navy SEALs, uh, yes. special forces to go to Peru, Mexico, other places to do Ibogaine therapy, the same type of therapy that Hunter did in part because it works. And because we're not doing it here because we still have all these bells and whistles blocking the way. Exactly. And, and so, you know, Hunter Biden went down and that's why you haven't, you know, this is why he's painting now. Um, you haven't seen any pictures of him with a crack pipe since 2019. He's, my understanding is he actually has, has recovered very well from his addiction and, and no longer has, has those issues, which means the president of the United States knows it works. And 50,000 veterans committed suicide while Joe Biden was vice president. 22 a day since he's become president. He knows it works. He, with the stroke of a pen, could fix a lot of this. But he's an old school drug warrior. He, he fired one of his first acts as president was firing people for weed. Really? I didn't even know that. Oh, yeah. He, he, so, so they told people to be honest about their weed consumption oh, um, no. for, for, for their clearances. They were told, look, you can't smoke it anymore, but you got to be honest and you won't and you, you'll be fine. So they did. And they and Joe Biden was given a choice that either he could change the, the rules for everyone or or he could fire the people, the people who admitted it, because everyone yes. else fucking smokes it. Right. And wow. so he, he that was one of his first acts. He's already said he won't do anything with cannabis till 2024. Why? It has total. Like these, these are issues that are not difficult as far as like public polling goes. There's Republicans who are hardcore behind this shit now. The interesting thing when it comes to on the policy side, it, it's not a left right thing. It's an old young thing. Mm. And a lot of the people who grew up in the dare generation, you know, and you know what? I get it. We now all know why Joe Biden's been so anti-drug because he saw addiction to destroy his son. And, and and I can understand that, but also he's got a, you know, he, he should also understand that he sent his son to Mexico to do Ibogaine therapy and it worked. And I'm ecstatic for Hunter Biden. I'm glad he got better. I don't want anybody who suffers from addiction issues or has PTSD or is suffering in any way to suffer. And if they can find what can help them fantastic yeah i haven't heard anything about this that he got i beginning i gotta look into that well and it's funny there there was a uh, recording that that the right-wing media has been talking about of, of hunter that it is a very accurate recording and it, and it says along the lines of you know my father listens to me he does he does what i say on these things and they were implying that it had to do with you know other, with business transactions he was actually referring to addiction 
him talking to his father about addiction. If you actually, Wait, how do you know that? I don't know what one you're talking about either. Um, so, so, so everybody would play this short clip. If you go and find the source clip that's longer, you can hear the whole conversation. And he's entirely talking about addiction. Oh, that's interesting. So, so Hunter is actually trying to push his father to do more on addiction services and things like that. Um, coming from a place of knowledge, the same kind of knowledge that, that I have of this works. I can, I, and I know it works because it worked for me. Right. So it can, it, I'm not that special. I, I mean, I'm sure Hunter thinks he's special, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that special. You know, millions of veterans have the same story I do. Yeah. The difference is I did MDMA three times. And, and it can and, work. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it's not just Republicans. It's not just Nixon and Reagan. Like Clinton did it, <laughs> and, and I believe Clinton's brother smoked weed on the roof of the White House, which I totally don't blame him. If I could smoke a joint, I mean, up, I, I don't blame him. Like I really don't. It's Bill Clinton's brother. <laughs> I think Bill Clinton was up there with him. <laughs> and I don't have a pro. You know, I'll be honest. Like, there's a lot of presidents that have needed some psychedelic therapy. Yes. There's a lot of pre presidents who probably would have benefited after a hard day. You know going up to the roof or walking out into the rose garden and smoking a bowl, you they know, probably did a lot of them. Yeah. But not all of them, but in all of, you know, when it comes to cannabis, any president can legalize it. You know, it's, it's really kind of funny. There were two distinct opportunities uh, in the last administration to legalize weed in the United States. And they were both entirely blocked by Democrats. Why? Wait, what What were the two opportunities? I didn't know about this. So one was uh, Cory Gardner uh, out of Colorado. Yeah. Struck a deal, got Trump's approval, got Republican approval, got and everything for the States Act, which would have legalized cannabis in states that choose to legalize it. Um, would have fixed the banking issues, would have fixed a whole bunch of stuff. So basically South Carolina, which wants to, to still make it illegal can make it illegal if they want just like in i believe it's alabama still has dry counties and you cannot purchase alcohol um but on the federal level it would have been legalized so that you're saying that would supersede yes so mm -hmm. so here's the thing no one would ever be federally prosecuted for anything involving cannabis from that point forward but there could still be some state prosecutions in states that would make it illegal, but like South Carolina keeps it illegal and doesn't even have a medical problem or program because their response is, well, the federal government says it's illegal. Got There's nothing it. we can do, which is funny because South Carolina is like the, the, the OG states rights will go to war if the federal government tells us what to do. Um, they've already done it once back in 1860. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that one. So, uh. Which, fun fact, my alma mater, the Citadel, fired the first shots of the Civil War. Yes, the Civil War was started by a bunch of ratty college kids. Go figure. Wow. Um, that that seems... Uh, but, but wow. So, so a lot of states, a lot of people would feel more comfortable if it was federally legal. And, and it would also fix the problem where we have like, what, 30, 43 states, something like that. There's only a handful that don't even have medical now. And it, 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 it would fix a lot of problems. Why did the Democrats block that? That seems also What did they say what they or... For. Yeah, what, what did they say or what was the real reason? It didn't go far enough. So therefore, do more or, or nothing. And, and the truth is, Democrats 
have been fighting for cannabis since since the seventies. Yeah, it's their issue, and they weren't going to give Trump the win. It's the same. It's the same reason why the vote on the Moore Act was moved in the House till after the election because there was a fear that if the House passed a legalization bill, Mitch McConnell would pass it under Trump's orders in October before the election. And that was the second one. That was the second one. <laughs> and then you saw this recent one that's not cannabis with the burn pits where it's the other way around where suddenly, you know, it had all the support for a long time and then suddenly they're like, no, we're not going to do this. Oh, and, and this is this is the crazy part. Now it's Republicans on Democrats. Yeah, it, Republicans <laughs> did a bunch of stupid, you know, the, what happened was they they had a deal with Joe Manchin on the CHIPS Act and reconciliation and Manchin changed his mind on reconciliation for the bill that just passed yesterday. Um, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which is a hilarious name. But so they threw a temper tantrum and it could have been any bill, but it happened to be the PACT Act. It happened to be about toxic exposure and veterans. And it was wrong. They shouldn't have done it. Like if you want to play those kind of games, play it on a different bill. Sure. Like play it on a tax bill, play it on a budget bill, play it on something like that. Not on this. Um, especially if you already voted for it, like Rand Paul, he's voted no the whole way. Okay, at least he's consistent. <laughs> yeah. But don't vote for it, then vote no, then vote for it a couple days later. But so dirty, man. They but, always throw like these sides always throw something in there, you know. And that's probably you know there's the ones that are clear political win base, like what you're talking about for sure. Yep. And then there's also bills where. You know, if I'm there's a poison pill. Yeah, if I'm a Republican and I'm making one up right now, but if I'm a, I'm a Republican and I want harder restrictions on abortions, and then I toss it into a bill that's about a tax plan, yeah. and then they say, "Oh, look, they voted down the tax plan or whatever." You know, well, that's why they voted it down because something else got put in there, and then that's not. Yep. It's all marketing. It's all marketing. Well, and and this is the funny thing because like you know. We, we saw John Stewart yelling into microphones, there were protests at the Capitol, you know, and everybody w was, was, was vilifying the Republicans. And I'll, I'll tell you, Republicans are just plain stupid for fist bumping on the fucking Senate floor. Yeah, but, that was dumb. You know, it's funny. Burn pits aren't a new issue. They've been an issue for 22 years. You Can know? you tell people what burn pits are out there who don't yeah, know? Yeah, so, so when the U.S. government decides to invade a country... Um, we can't like use their, their trash people to take care of our trash. So we create giant burn pits and we put everything, every piece of waste, food products, uh, uh, toilet paper, blown up Humvees, body parts, you name it. Everything goes into the burn pit and it burns 24 seven. Uh, the one on the base I was on, I believe was 10 acres. That You're was breathing that in for a year. You know, I, I was just down in North Carolina uh, at that change of command ceremony. And, you know, it's funny, all, all of us that deployed together, we're all standing in this circle, you know, jaw jacking like we used to. And we've all got this dry cough. It goes from one to the other. And it, I'm like, hey, look, burn pits. But, you know, it's funny because uh, those same things uh, to help vets with burn pits were also filibuster for four years. And nobody batted an eye. I didn't see John Stewart yelling at anybody. He was out there saying, hashtag resist, vote against everything. So 
nobody bats an eye at that. You know, I give a lot of respect uh, to IVA and Tom Porter, their uh, VP governmental affairs. IVA and some of these orgs that have been pushing for, for toxic burn pits, they've been doing it for 10 years. They don't care who's president. They don't care who, who controls the Senate. They don't care who controls right. the House. It's about this is a problem. We've got solutions. Let's get the solutions As to the people who, who need them. And you constantly see this this left and right. And it, it, it's also kind of funny where, you know, again, John Stewart got a ton of publicity. A bunch of people are probably going to listen to his podcast and all that because of what he did. And, yeah, he was fighting for vets, and that's a good thing. He we, has fought, like, he has. he has fought on these issues, though, a lot. But it's really funny if you look at the issues that he, when he chooses to fight. And that when he chooses to fight is when he gets to fight against Republicans. That's probably right. You know, how about this? Burn pit legislation, you're right. And it's going to help a lot of veterans. 22 veterans a day are killing themselves. MDMA-assisted therapy phase three trial shows 67% of people no longer have PTSD. An additional 21% have a massive reduction in symptoms. The president of the United States currently knows because his son went and did it. Where's John Stewart? Why isn't he calling for this? Why isn't he on the Capitol steps? Why is he, he aware? Is Does he have education on it? You want to tell me John Stewart doesn't know about psychedelics? Come on. I'm not saying he doesn't <laughs> know about that, but I'm saying, like, is this an issue that he's looked at? And is there a way that we can – I'll bet if you took this issue to John Stewart right now, I'll bet he'd do something about it. I've emailed his people. so. All right. Well, let's make that happen. I'd love, that to. I'd love to talk to him about it because it, here's the thing. You need people like that. You, you need people to push the issue. And I am more than willing to be proved wrong by John Stewart. Um, you know, but there's things in it that veterans need. And I'm going to tell you, one of the biggest issues facing veterans is the PTSD epidemic. And it, and it's, and it affects and infests everything. Um, you know, it, it's more than just how much DOD spends on treatment. It's more than what the VA spends on treatment. It's more than what VA pays in compensation, which is in the hundred $100 billion dollars just for PTSD, you know, it, it affects families. Yeah. You know, it's things like most operators get out at 15 years. Why? Because they can't make it to 20. So they don't get their retirement. They don't get anything. They don't even get health benefits. It if, is amazing how poorly, and it's, this has been a theme for a long, long time, but how poorly we take care of our veterans in this country. I don't understand it. it. It is something I would happily, if they said, hey, we're going to add, I don't, I don't know, I don't even know what it would take, five tenths of a percent to your taxes every year and it's going to that? Fuck yeah, sign me up. It's not a difficult issue. Well, and, and the funny thing is, you know, after Vietnam, you, you had veterans spit on and then they did nothing to help them. Here, we get parades and we get handshakes and we're thanked for our service and then they do nothing. Right. They just changed the wrapping paper. Still same shitty gift. And, you know, it, well, it's because that makes them feel better. I got to throw a parade. Yes, I got to do this. Exactly. Oh, wait. I own a small business. Uh, that, that guy, that vet seems a little weird. He might have PTSD. I'm not going to hire him. Cause, and here's another thing, too. That aside, we're putting so much of it on regular Joe Blows in the private sector 
to then have to carry the whole responsibility. Yep. And, and maybe they're not smart enough to do that. Maybe they're not thinking enough about the responsibility that is to veterans. We don't put enough of our public resources on, for example, actually making our VAs effective. You know, giving giving veterans resources that are beyond just like, hey, we'll help you get your first job, then go fuck yourself. You know, like this is it starts at the it starts at the steps back, and I it, it's but here it, this but is not I hear this from in a different way from every veteran too, so I'm, I it's not surprising to hear, and that makes me sad. But but here's the other thing: what is the root cause of all of those issues? So you so you have, and the answer is physical and mental injuries. Yeah. Physical injuries, they do the best they can. And actually, the VA has, has, has a pretty decent record. They're, they're overwhelmed <laughs> and have too many people. But some of the it, if it weren't for the VA, we wouldn't have the advancements in prosthetics that we have. And there's a lot of, of treatments for physical injuries that have come out of the VA. Um, and, and, and they do good work. Mental injuries is a different story. And they try, but some of the best things to help heal mental injuries are still off the table and that's the problem mm. and, and so you know veteran homelessness how much do you think mental health is involved in that one thousand percent addiction issues amongst veterans being able to hold a job like we can go through almost every issue and it can be tied to one of those two things physical mm -hmm. or mental injuries now part of the problem is we treat mental injuries and physical injuries different if you have a physical injury, you get a purple heart, you're treated as a hero, everything. You have a mental injury, well, you're just crazy. And a lot and and I'm glad the military has come a long way since 0506 when it was, well, you were crazy before you came in, it's not our fault. Do you remember the Ray Rice video in 2014? The elevator? Yep. Yeah. Where he beat the shit out of his wife. Yep. Do you remember what happened right before that video came out? I don't. He was suspended for six games. Now, I remember the six. He was suspended for six games. Suspended for six games, and people said, "Well, that's really bad. He did it. He was getting judged, but he's going to come back after six games, and people were going to move on." And by the way, Ray Rice is a guy who, to his credit, has taken full responsibility for that and done a lot of work around that, and is married to that woman today. Think what you will of that, and had never done anything wrong in his life that we know of before that. So this was a awful incident and you know it ruined his life because he never played again and the reason he never played again is because we got a video leak then people were suddenly like i can't believe this he needs to be he needs to be banned forever and no team ever signed him and i'm not saying that's the wrong thing i'm saying that's what it took for us to do it and it's just one example of many that i could do across our history hey, in this Deshaun country watson plays for the cleveland browns my my, my home team um you know it's funny and he got a six game suspension as well for now but, you know, if you place a bet on a game you're not even involved in and don't play on, you'll get suspended for a year because right. that messes with the NFL's money. Right. And that's why they, they didn't – why Ray Rice didn't play again. But now imagine – let's use that example too. Imagine if there were video of these accusations that Deshaun Watson had done. He'd never play again because people would see it. And so the point is mental injuries we can't see. Yep. When someone comes home and they have a they have two prosthetics and half their face is blown off, we can see that. Yep. We can see that and we're like, "Oh, wow, what do we got to do to help that?" But someone's, you know, just walking in a grocery store and in their minds a war, but you're just walking down aisle fucking 5, you can't see that. And so no one does no, anything no. about how, it. How, how about this? You have a guy who who has, you know, has a prosthetic, burn face, all all of that. And he walks into a grocery store 
and and like say he slips and falls okay because of his prosthetic um people are gonna rush over and help him mm-hmm. and all of this now let's imagine somebody with ptsd and some a can or something a, a glass bottle falls from a top shelf makes a huge loud bang and the dude just collapses in, in a ball of tears how do you think he's gonna get treated people are gonna be real confused some people would help him, but it's not. I understand what you're saying. It's not the same. People, a lot of people would make fun of him. Guarantee you, people would probably pull out a camera. You know, yeah. spilling over spilled spaghetti. You know what have you? And, and a lot of that is you can't see it. Yeah. And, and so, and one of the other things is, you know, we have told people for forever that PTSD, shell shock, whatever you want to call it, is you know, is 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 a chronic mental health condition that once acquired is your new normal. We we can do some things to mitigate symptoms, but this is your life now. And they wonder why people put a bullet in their brain. Right. You know, these are mental injuries. The U.S. government will spend millions of dollars for a soldier who gets shot to heal them and get them as as good as they can. You get kicked out if you get PTSD. And this is why, you know, on the, uh, I, 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 I'm really proud of, of Dan Crenshaw for putting that bill in. He has a veteran, mm-hmm. you know, he understands these are mental injuries. You know, he, he's been through a lot and the federal government has spent a lot to get him where he is. Um, and, and he's still, you know, missing an eye, et cetera. And he still has, has several issues, but, but anytime there's an issue, he goes and he gets, and, and he can get help. And he wants to make sure that, that mental injuries are treated the same way, you know, and, and a lot of it is just realizing that that's what it is. You know, PTSD is like a gunshot wound. The only difference is instead of going and and, and fixing it and stitching it up and all of that, they just wipe away the blood and they're like, it'll be fine. You know, I don't know any commander who's going to accuse somebody with a broken leg of malingering. And, you know, there, there's a lot of bad leadership when it comes to, to PTSD in the military. But also, you know, the military is where it needs to happen for veterans because the idea that, hey, you can no longer serve because you have PTSD and you have to get kicked out at 18 years, two years before your retirement check kicks in. But the VA will take care of you. And then you go over to the VA and you do, say, MDMA-assisted therapy and you're perfectly fine. Why would you have to get out? My ultimate goal would be for everyone to be healed while they're in service and never have to go to mental health at the VA. Because if you're traumatized, if you have PTSD, you should be given an opportunity to heal. And the fact that the United States military is not currently doing that, they're leaving people behind. Something we say we don't do in this country. We do it all the time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But you, I, I mean, eventually, thank God, you know, you were able to get yourself in this opportunity, which you had to do yourself, and you had to get into a clinical trial. But you get in with these two doctors, the husband and wife, who had been working in this for years and years trying to do research. And now, I guess they, as psychiatrists, they had, they were given the responsibility of handling, I guess, parts of the study, right? Yeah. The overall study. Okay. So you get in with them in 2014. 
it was three sessions total, 2013, Correct. 2015, or, tw- or I'm sorry, 2014 and 2015? Correct. So I, I took my first dose. Uh, it was the week of Thanksgiving, so in, which was November 22nd, because uh, I was going to the Citadel as a veteran day student at the time. So I kind of worked my, my sessions in when I knew I wouldn't have school for a while. Um, and, and so that was my first one. I did the second one, uh, right after the first of the year and the third one in, uh, February or March. It was somewhere around there. Okay. So when you got into the study, did you have some pre-meetings and pre-sessions with the two doctors before you did yeah, any so, of this? So, well, so there's all the sessions that are like qualifications for, for the trial and, and like mm-hmm. informed consent and, and that stuff, which is all FDA stuff. Uh, and then there's, you do do therapy sessions beforehand. And, and a lot of that is so they know what's going on and, and stuff like that. So they better know how to guide you. Um, then you do an active session and then you do uh, three integration sessions after each active session. The active session is when you take it. Correct. The integration is, uh, you're saying it's a later one? It's a 90-minute regular talk therapy session, no MDMA or anything Right, like to that. follow up what you had done. Yeah. And so, that's the MDMA protocol. Uh, psilocybin protocols, ketamine, and ibogaine are, are different. Um, I'm more versed in the MDMA ones. Got but, it. Okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll go with MDMA just to go through like the exacts on yeah. some of this stuff then. So, it's also the one I did. <laughs> right, yeah. right. So, and it worked. So we, we got, we got, well, they all work and they all work for different things. Um, and, and I think that's going to be one of the more interesting things as research goes on is eventually we're going to have, you know, a cornucopia of different things that help some help better than others. Like I happen to personally think MDMA is, is very, is perfectly suited for PTSD in particular because of how it manifests itself. Um, that is exclusively what they use mostly for well, PTSD. Correct. Though, right? uh, well, no, they, they, they can also use Ibogaine. I also know people who use, right, who, right, right, who right, use right, psilocybin right. Yes. And, and other things. Um, I was thinking about, I'm sorry, I was thinking about versus psilocybin, but you do know some people who are using psilocybin for PTSD? Yes. Okay. I, I know people who have done psilocybin-assisted therapy for PTSD with the intention of healing PTSD, and it was highly effective for them. Uh, that was also not as part of a clinical trial. That was on the underground. Um, they all work to an extent on, 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 on like these different acquired mental injuries. Um, but some work better than others. Like for example, psilocybin is really great for depression, right? MDMA. I mean, long-term is in, in, while being associated with PTSD, it's effective, but as a standalone, I don't know. Cause the research hasn't been done. And this is where, you know, we can find out what is the best thing, you know, because in the future, I'd love it for people to be able to walk into a clinic and sit down and say, hey, this is the problem I'm having. And they're like, well, okay, this is what you need. And that could be, hey, it's psilocybin. Hey, it's ibogaine. Hey, it's ibogaine and 5-MeO-DMT, or it's MDMA followed by a psilocybin session. Once we do the research, we'll know the best way to do it. And the truth is different people need different things and different things work differently on different people. So for example, the MDMA therapy, the MAPS phase three results, uh, 12% of people it didn't work on. So those people still need help. And this is why, you know, there's a lot of people who are like, no, it's gotta be psilocybin or it's gotta be this or it's gotta be. No, you know what? 
I I, I know somebody uh, who who's doing you know SBG the subganglial block uh, the neck injection thing and uh, that's highly effective for them. I know somebody else who's doing that in addition to doing ketamine assisted therapy. What do they put in the neck injection? I have no idea how this works. It's something that hits something that turns off PTSD in the brain for a couple of months. It's SBG subganglial block. Wow. Um, Got to look into that. Yeah. And for some people, hyperbaric therapy works. For some people, you know what? Yoga and Tai Chi works. Others, you know, going to church works. This is why we need a cornucopia of solutions. Mm. And, and depending on severity in the individual and what they're comfortable with, you know, they can get the help they need. So with you, you were one of the 88% where it was effective and you were one of the 67% it was, right? Where it worked so, completely. Interestingly enough, uh, I still technically had PTSD at the 12-month follow-up. Um, but I've gotten better since then. Uh, now, But I, it was a lot less. I was in the 21% that had a massive reduction in symptoms, almost to the point of not having it, but I still technically did. And I do believe... There's some factors in that. Uh, one is I was dealing not just with Iraq trauma, but um, also I was abused as a child. And so I was dealing with a whole bunch of stuff throughout my whole life. And I, I even at the time, I was like, I kind of wish I had a fourth session. Um, so I think that may have been a factor. The fact that it took me a very long time to believe it would be permanent is a big factor. I heard you talking about that in the live session on yeah. the Netflix doc. You're like, I'm just worried that this isn't, you know, one of my fears is that this, this is taking it away now and it's not going to last forever. And that's, Hey, that's like the first question I have from the outside. Like when I talk with you or I talk, I talk with John Costacopoulos, like, are you thinking that what well, you feel great while it's happening? And you're like, well, what happens when this turns off? That's what I'd be thinking. Oh, absolutely. And, and it's, it, you know, my thoughts before and my thoughts immediately after were very different. Um, I was terrified when I first did it in part because I thought, you know, again, dare era, I, I was afraid like I'd see dragons and, and think that the therapists were insurgents and I would hurt them. Um, that was actually a huge fear of mine. Then I did MDMA and realized that was not going to happen. So, um, but the other thing is because I, I knew I was better, I pushed my triggers and I purposely triggered myself to find out where they were. So when they would ask me questions, have you been triggered in the past six weeks? Well, yeah, three times. Why? Because I purposely did. <laughs> so that was also a factor. Uh, okay. Oh, did you lose the, the volume right there? Yeah, there we go. You just got it. Yeah, you just got to turn that. Sorry. And I'll tuck it in there. Yep. You good now? There we go. All right, cool. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, it's good. Um, I totally lost where it was going. So you were now. I'm trying to remember too how far you got. Oh no, I was pushing my triggers. So I, I right. so so that was part of the reason. But um, I I would say probably between that 12 and 18 month mark is when I went completely PTSD free, and I've honestly been getting better since. And 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 it get in. Like it's not like my life has been peaches and roses since I went through. Yeah, in part because saying, I, yeah. you know, stuff happens. I've voluntarily gone and done stuff. You know, you have things like you, you saw my therapy tapes uh, on how to change your mind. They, a lot of media outlets want access to the, my therapy tapes, and I, I typically give it to them. But what they do is they then send me time codes, and I have to go watch my therapy tapes, and that's 
you know, watching, <laughs> watching a home movie about all the worst stuff in your life narrated by you gets interesting. Um, it's something I would prefer not to do. Um, in part because it reminds me of how I used to be, and I'm so happy I'm not that way anymore. But they, you said something really interesting. I don't know if you realize it, but when you were talking about how a year later when you did your one-year checkup, you still had some. Yeah. So you were technically in the 21%. Correct. But then you just mentioned somewhere between the 12 and 18 months out, it went away, and it's never come back. Correct. Did they re-reflect the data to put you in the fully cured? No. So, so that could mean that well, could mean that maybe the twelve percent who it didn't work for, perhaps Maps, at some point it did. Well, so this is why Maps is currently working on, uh, I believe, it, uh, uh, is working on a long term follow up to to actually get that data. Mm. Um, and, and that's that, Rick Doblin's organization. Yes. And and when we get the data, we get the you know we'll know the answer to those questions. Um, but mm. a lot of people have said they've that they've continued to heal. Um, and it, it, it's interesting because. You know, for some people, there's an aha moment. You know, the two people who dropped out before completing the protocol, they had an aha moment. They were like, oh, I'm better. Like, they they processed what they needed to process, and they were good. For me, in part, I think because I had so much different trauma throughout my life, um, it was more like Drano. If you've ever had a clogged drain, you know, you pour pour Drano in, it opens up a little bit, you pour it in again, it opens up more, pour it in again, and it, and it clears it out. That was more my experience. It, it got better each time. And then I just continued to get better, um, especially when I got to the point where I was like, not only does this work, but it's not diminishing in any way. Like, I'm still good. And then the universe decided to chuck a bunch of weird stuff my way, and I'm still good. Now, that wow. doesn't mean I don't go talk to therapists when I need to, because I absolutely do. And, you know, I don't do MDMA or, or any of that kind of therapy. I just call up and process with a therapist, in part because I learned that keeping that shit in, it rots your brain and causes PTSD. And so I deal with it. And it's hard, and it's awkward, and, you know, it might be it actually would be a lot easier if I did do like MDMA, but that's also not legal. So I've only done MDMA three times in my life. And, and that was part of three sessions, just those three sessions. And so what and, happens in those sessions? Can you take me inside the room? So like your first one, you go in, mm -hmm. you have the two doctors who, again, as you said, you've already met with, you've already had some sessions with talk about this, go through everything to expect all the things that happen in your life as well. So that they have an understanding but again, people can see this on the documentary. It's very compelling stuff. But you go onto a bed. They're seated right next to you. Hmm. You're in a room at a given clinic place, I guess, where you're doing this. And do you just sit down right away and they give you a pill and then they wait for it to set in? Like, how, how, does, it, how does it go? Um, so now some of, some of this stuff is, in, is entirely because it's a clinical trial. Um, so, like, I showed up. They handed me a cup to piss in um, because you have to be off all your mental health meds and you can't use cannabis or anything like that. Um, and like specifically being on SSRIs is bad and they'll work with you. So they had to work with me for a while to get me off meds and things like that. I but say that's, that's a whole process in and yeah. of itself. <laughs> like a month long process. Wow. So, you know, everything's good. Go, you know, I brought my own blanket and pillow and stuff. <laughs> so, um, 
you know, go in, then they hook me up to like a heart monitor and a pulse ox monitor and like all these things that to be honest, like there's no reason for a pulse ox monitor other than the FDA says so. At least I mean, there could entirely be a legitimate reason. I'm just saying I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> um and there's some of these things that that they have to monitor because the FDA says so that probably would not happen in an actual therapy session. But yeah, they're like, Are you ready? They got this little dish, and like I kept hoping it was going to be a red. Like they give me two choices: a red pill and a blue pill. <laughs> like, like like the Matrix, one's the placebo, one's the real one, and you decide. Um, were but, there any placebos in this study for yes. the people? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you didn't know if you were going to get it or not. Correct. Same deal. Okay. Yeah, th- this is a double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized clinical research trial. Um, so I didn't know, and you know, the interesting thing is the people is to also you know. Typically, you look at a placebo and it doesn't really do anything. <laughs> well, in this case, it does. And there's a reason because you're still doing like 80 hours of therapy and you're doing three eight hour therapy sessions. That in and of itself actually has helped a lot of people. Mm. Um, upwards of, I believe, 30% had, had, wow. had uh, large reductions in symptoms in the placebo group. Um. And actually, believe it or not, there was one individual in the placebo group who felt so much better that he went out and was talking about it because they hadn't broken the blind and he fully believed that he had taken MDMA. Whoa. And so, and he was better. Now, one of the, everyone who's in the placebo group, there's, there's what's known as crossover. So because uh, Rick Doblin, the board and the people at MAPS believe that it is wrong to allow someone to continue to suffer if the people who got the placebo are given the opportunity to do a full dose so there if they do the placebo and and it's determined they did the placebo they are given the opportunity to then go through the whole thing again but using mdma that's cool yeah Yeah, because it was different when i had john costacopoulos in here who you know it was different for his. He yeah. had three. It was psilocybin in his case, and he had three sessions. And people who had gotten the placebo in the first session got it again in the second, and then they would give them the real thing only in the third. So it better work on one session, or it doesn't work. Yeah. Out. So, so uh, in the phase, I, I, I'm not 100 percent sure on phase three uh, where they break the blind. Um, so I'm not, I, I won't, I won't discuss that, but in my case, in the phase two study, they broke the blind between the second and third session. Now, interestingly enough, uh, there was three separate, uh, dosage levels in my trial. So some people got, got placebo. Some people got low dose, which was, I believe 75 or 80 milligrams. And then some people mm. got 125, which was the, the high dose. So both me and Michael and Annie, the therapists, we all thought I got the low dose. And then it turns out I got one, the 125. Why did you guys think that? Well, so I had no frame of reference because I had only done like cannabis. So like I'd never done MDMA, so I didn't know what good or bad <laughs> dosage or anything. So like, um, but they even based on their reaction thought I was low dose. Um, but also on the few times I've taken psilocybin, I've had some in, interesting reactions. I've done ayahuasca twice and it did absolutely nothing. I'm probably one of the only people that will sit in this chair and ever say those words. Hmm. Um, she dabbled around a little bit after this. <laughs> well, so 
I, I only do psychedelics in a legal sense. So mm. uh, the two ayahuasca ceremonies I did, I did through uh, a church that has Supreme Court permission to do it here in the United States. Um, and then so that sounds complicated. <laughs> it was when they were going through the courts, but they, they, they have permission. Um, okay. and so, and then, uh, there are places in the United States where psilocybin has been decriminalized. Washington DC being one of them. Really? Initiative 81. Hmm. That's promising. One with overwhelming support actually, but so it's what, only plant-based psychedelics. What did you want to try that because you had done this other stuff and you figure what the fuck kind of yeah I mean, well so one of the things is um like I, there's nothing preventing me from doing mdma again other than myself and the fact that like i get asked about addiction a lot like well, if we give people mdma they're gonna get addicted well no they're not you yeah. haven't heard that at all from this oh i yeah and, and part of this is like if you go do something and go to a rave and meet a girl and have a great night and all of this, I entirely get why you'd wake up the next morning and be like, I totally want to do this again. I went through all the worst trauma in my life and, and was processing it. it. It's not traumatic, like say prolonged exposure therapy and some of these other others uh, treatments are, but it's a lot of hard work and it's not fun. You know, one of the... <laughs> Funny analogies I use up on Capitol Hill all the time, in part because so many people up there are 9,000 years old. <laughs> I mean, I didn't realize that when we elected Congress for the first time in 1790 that, like, that was it. That was our Congress <laughs> for forever. Um, uh, that's good. I don't think the Filing Fathers planned it, planned it that way either, but um, I use colonoscopies, actually, because it, there, there's actually a, a really good equivalency there. It's a necessary procedure to prevent very bad things from happening. You've got specially trained people. They give you very powerful drugs to knock you out. You go through a very uncomfortable procedure. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know what? When you're coming out of it in, in the recovery room, yeah, you, you might feel a little loopy. You might feel some, some interesting sensations and things like that. But, you know, I don't know anybody who's ever woken up the next day and be like, dude, that anesthesia was so awesome. I totally need to schedule another mm. colonoscopy. It's the same thing. It's a good way to look at it. So, like, that's why I'm like, that. that's fine. I, I mean, I will one day use it recreationally and and will in part these things will eventually all be legalized and then i'll be able to like have the spiritual stuff but i think we're headed that way for sure with this yeah yeah and and it's it's kind of funny because you know rick doblin knew my rule of i don't you know i i, I do use cannabis for for pain control and things like that um as well as to help me sleep sometimes but uh you know he knew my rules and he called me up one day and he's like if you could do ayahuasca legally, <laughs> would you? I'm like, you'd have to entirely explain to me what you mean by legally and how that works. <laughs> but yes, I'm interested. Um, And so he introduced me and I went and I did it twice. 
And they really want me to come back. And they're like, we're going to give you more next time and see if we can get this to work. But, <laughs> and, and I don't know why. I don't know if it's because my body processes things quicker than, than others. I don't know if it's related to my TBI, but. Um, you didn't really feel anything. I felt nothing. I sat there for four hours watching everybody lose their minds. Well, not, I won't say lose their minds, but it, to me, you know, when you're rolling on the floor and puking and shit and, and stuff like that, like, yeah. I mean, ayahuasca ceremonies are not pretty. And uh, they're very, very helpful. They're just, if you're the sober dude in the room. Yeah, people freak out. <laughs> like, yeah. And, you know, I'm glad everybody else that I did it with, you know, got healing and, and, and it, it benefited them. And, and that's fantastic. I just sat there and I'm like, this is um and i was like there's something wrong with me this isn't <laughs> i'm like for a minute it was kind of funny i was like what if this is what everyone feels like and everybody made all this shit up <laughs> mm. like i'm like this is so weird and i'm like yeah i felt nothing the second time they gave me a double dose actually and and still the same thing now part of it is i actually think i know why why so one of the things with uh ayahuasca ceremonies is frequently because they're done in a religious context everyone does it and me being kind of a protector worrier like anybody who's been out with me you know i don't get so drunk that i can't react if like somebody in my group or party needs help it's just the way i am and so so like for example for my birthday every year it asked my my brother-in-law uh john rice to to uh I'm like, all right, you stay sober. I get shit faces I want <laughs> because I, I don't feel comfortable relinquishing that control unless I know mm. everyone's safe. And if nobody else is going to take that, take on that mantle, I will. So I think part of the reason I, I had no effect is because my mind had a hard time letting go because nobody was sober. Everybody was on ayahuasca, including the people who yes. were administering. Correct. And so, huh. and I actually had a lengthy conversation with the people about this. And I'm like, my concern here is it, it's not that I'm worried about the ayahuasca. It's not. My worry is, hey, if somebody gets up because they have to use the bathroom, because anybody who's done ayahuasca knows that happens, and, and they're unsteady on their feet and they fall and crack their head open on a coffee table. Yeah. One of the things is the headline's going to be woman dies at ayahuasca ceremony, yep. not woman trips and falls. Yeah, this sounds really, this one sounds really irresponsible if every single person in there is on it. And, and I'm like, I would feel better if there was, you know, a sober safety. Yes. And it, it was interesting that I got pushback. They're like, no, this isn't how they do it, you know, in the jungle. Uh, Fuck know, the jungle. You, ha you have to worry about headlines. That That is what yes. people will hear about the one body that drops and they'll, they'll design the whole thing around it. It's actually one of the concerns I have with the spread of decrim and, and the spread of availability is that people don't practice harm reduction. They don't know how to use these things safely and effectively. Right. And, and the more negative consequences and bad outcomes, that's how MDMA got banned in the first place. Correct. All these things got banned in the first place because of bad outcomes and, and, and improper harm reduction. Um, but I think my brain just wouldn't let go. Um, and I, the funny part is I brought it up and I talked about it and they're like, oh, you just need to come down. You come down to Peru, you know, you'll see people do it and then they go chop down trees with axes. And I'm like, dude, if I don't feel comfortable in like a house, 
doing ayahuasca because someone might trip and fall yeah having people swinging axes is not going to make me feel better yeah that's not responsible. Um, and and this is another thing there's a lot of people who who claim that they're doing these things um for mental health but if you're not doing the integration you're not doing the work that's not what this is about you're trading one addiction for another and and that's a problem I'm glad. I'm very glad to see you use a good foil here that you also have personal experience with, with, with looking at the situation because it is something I worry about in, in these conversations. And I have thought about the whole legalize everything argument. It's not something I'm like. There's I'm a difference shut. between legalize everything and decriminalize everything. There's a huge difference. And this is a conversation that I. Can you define that difference? So decriminalization means it's not a crime, meaning let's sell it out of the back of trucks on the side of the road like rutabagas. So, for example, lettuce decriminalized. Literally anybody can grow lettuce and go sell it. Yeah, but that's like lettuce. You eat it. Understand. So legalization thinks Sudafed. So one of the issues I have with decriminalization is the biggest argument, in my opinion, for full drug legalization, like 100% legal equivalent to like alcohol, yeah, is honestly the fact that foreign actors are using the drug war to wage war with drugs, fentanyl. But wouldn't that, if you legalized it, wouldn't you also be able to have FDA approved industries produce it correct which would mean they would be manufactured under good manufacturing practices just right i don't know anybody who goes to cvs buys advil and thinks it's laced with fentanyl right exactly so if you have a situation let's take heroin where you go to you go to some cvs and you go to the pharmacy and you show your id like you do with sudafed and you buy a gram of heroin you know uh carl hart uh dr carl hart uh mm -hmm. Professor, uh, and if I'm downgrading him by calling him a professor, I apologize, uh, up at Columbia University. Most people who use drugs don't have a problem. There's a lot of people who can go out and say, do cocaine on a Friday night or do heroin on a Friday night and not have an issue. Heroin? Heroin. Most people who do heroin. 90% of people who do heroin have no negative uh, outcome. Now that's individual time they use it. If right, use but when but when you're saying don't have a problem, that takes it much farther than no negative outcome because negative outcome with heroin is you die. Correct. Right, but the people who are using heroin, by and large, because like I know Carl Hart's talked about, like he before uses oxycontin, it. how many opiate overdoses were there a year? Th roughly three thousand. The deaths are coming from things being adulterated. Right, but still, hold on, let's not yeah. get off this. With heroin. Even if it was low on the number of people who were actually like full blown dying, mm -hmm. it's such an addictive, physically and mentally altering drug that they are. There are often people who end up homeless and living in a box somewhere, you know, for shelter because they're using heroin. Correct. See, that's an issue. And, so, like, people don't and that use. Is, no, no, that is, and, and I don't disagree that that is an issue. I'm fully prepared to deal with that issue. And if we don't spend trillions of dollars on a drug war, guess what we have to be able to help that? I, mm, I view addiction, okay. you know, growing up, uh, actually, my oldest brother started using heroin 
at about age 12. Age 12? Yeah. Holy shit. By the way, affluent suburb of Cleveland. He got it from the kid of a doctor who lived up the street. Who had heroin? Yep. The doctor had heroin? Yep. For what? I don't know. (laughs) But... Fuck. So... And actually, my oldest brother was one of my abusers. So when when he was high, I, I personally witnessed how bad addiction is. I also view it as a medical issue. Because guess what? Most addiction, I know exactly why my brother started using drugs. Because we were abused as kids. And he wanted to make it go away. And, he, and the heroin allowed that. So, I agree. It is a medical issue. So yeah, yeah I, if I was yeah. arguing against that, that's not what I meant but, at all. No, no. And, and here's the thing: just because I think you should be able to go to CVS and buy 100 percent, like like tested and like 100 percent pure heroin manufactured to f you know FDA standards, and I believe this for all all the drugs, by the way, um, doesn't mean I think people should abuse it. Doesn't mean I don't think people should do harm reduction. I think if we, you know, we sell alcohol. I, and, and alcohol causes a whole bunch of problems. Right. And we deal with those problems. Like, I don't think you should do heroin and drive. I think driving under the influence should always be illegal. Oh, okay. Hold on. Hold on, though. With heroin, though, again, because I, I got – and with the Carl Hart guy, I've heard pieces of his arguments. I still haven't sat down and listened to a full podcast of it because it is it is actually a little bit of a bridge too far for me. I do have to sit down and listen to the whole goddamn oh, thing. Oh, it's a very bitter pill for me to swallow. But I'll tell you, when you have 120,000 Americans who die because a foreign government is injecting fentanyl into the drug supply, that's a problem. I'm not arguing that. But I'm saying when we start to – if because, again, I'm not saying I'm shutting down this argument of like whether – you get an, I don't want to say the wrong thing, but legalization or decriminalization. The point is, like, it's available and you can buy it in CVS, whatever that is. Uh-huh. I'm not shutting that down, but I'm saying, like, the difference between snorting heroin and having a couple beers, there's no comparison. Heroin is a, is a totally, like, people abuse the fuck out of alcohol. They become alcoholics. Some people die from it. Uh-huh. Very real. I Same agree. with heroin. I, yeah. Yes, but I'm saying, a, like... A little bit of heroin becomes a major addiction for, I don't know the percentage off the top of my head, but when you try heroin, chances are you're doing it again and you're going to have a big problem with it. It's not like having a beer. It's t- These are two very different so, so, things. So one, doing it once and saying you'll, that, that you will do it again doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. If you go have a beer, that doesn't mean you won't go have a beer that, in, a, in, in a week. Right. If we're talking about abuse and addiction, that is different than use. And I think part of the problem that we have is too many people confuse abuse and addiction with use. Okay. So here's the question. Yes. Alcohol use. Someone who's not an alcoholic Mm -hmm. drinks alcohol. I drink alcohol. I'm an alcohol user in that case. Correct. 100%. How many heroin users are in any way functional? What percentage? It's low. It's low. Define a heroin user. Are we talking daily or are we talking, hey, you know what? I'm going to buy- Once a week. Actually, at once a week, you'd be surprised. But if I'm surprised, is it 20%? It's probably like 80. 80, You're telling me 80% of people use heroin once a week. They're perfectly fine. They're they're not abusing or, or don't have abuse or addiction. 
All right, I need to look into this more off the podcast because I, I just don't. That is one like there's cocaine. But, totally agree with you. Cocaine. Everyone, but also, everyone I know. But also cocaine. here. But also here's the other thing. Why do people keep? If you ask most heroin addicts, what did they start taking? Alcohol. Prescription drugs. Prescription opiates. Okay, that makes sense. And they got hooked because they were told by their doctor, take all these pills 24-7 for months and months on end, and then they get cut off and they turn to heroin. There's a big difference between having the pharmaceutical industry purposely get people addicted and then they go use heroin. And yes, those people's lives were absolutely destroyed. And I'll say it right here. The Sacklers with Purdue Pharma should be in jail for Agreed. what they did. Agreed. But so let's take that out of the equation for a second. They get addicted because see, here's the thing. Go back to the, to, to the alcohol. If you were required to do a shot of alcohol every hour or two shots of alcohol every hour that you're awake. Oh, you're fucked. For, for a year or two years. How about this? When I got out of the Marine Corps in 1999, I had a, a bit of a back issue. Got way worse in Iraq. But I, I, had, I, I had a problem with my back. And uh, I went to the VA. I said, hey, I got a problem with my back. They're like, what happened? I'm like, well, there was this time, you know, I was lifting a 463L pallet with a dude. And he dropped it and didn't say he was going to drop it. And so I took the full weight of it and like my back's been kind of fucked up since I'm like okay um here's your prescription you can pick it up at the pharmacy they gave me three mm -hmm. giant bottles of Ficodin. Mm -hmm. and 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 this is the thing when we talk about addiction and abuse we need to factor these things in yeah, totally this argument you're making could not agree with you more because see here's the funny thing you know, when we're talking opiates, to be honest, it really doesn't matter whether it's heroin, Oxycontin, Vicodin, Percocet. They're all opiates. They all have the same effect. Um, as far as on the body, dosages are different between them, but the, the same effect. Do you have any idea how many people in this country will pop a Percocet on a Friday night before they go out? It's a lot more than we consciously realize, but it's a lot. And this is where... Like, that's literally what we're talking about when we're talking about heroin. You know, the interesting thing about heroin addicts, and, and like, I'll be honest, I didn't know any of this until I started researching yeah. it. And, and a lot of this was, I was like, I, I started looking at the opiate epidemic and, and I saw what, what China was doing. And I'm like, my brain kept going to, damn it, we got to legalize it. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you, Howard, <laughs> with an organization called Cops, um, which is like Cops Against Prohibition or something like that, uh, he'll, he'll love that I'm talking about legalizing heroin. Um, but, look, we have a drug war. The question is, like, it, it's kind of funny. All the people who have issues with, with uh, civil liberties because of the Patriot Act. Mm -hmm. Everything in the Patriot Act was completely legal before that as long as it involved drugs. Drugs have, have done... So, the drug war in and of itself ha has has caused so many problems. The problems that drugs ha lead to can be 
especially because we've gotten better as 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 humanity. We know what addiction is. Right. We we know some places to help. I mean, part of the problem we have with addiction is the fact that the addiction uh, rehab industry is is a pump and dump money making scheme where where they heal people. They they get they they sober them up to go out and use again so that they'll come back because health insurance keeps paying for it. This is why I'd rather them go to Mexico and do Ibogaine or, you know, MDMA therapy or anything to heal that underlying trauma that's causing the addiction. Because guess what? People like to feel loopy. Whether, the, whether it's, it's cannabis or alcohol or, or what have you. And the idea that, that something should be illegal because of negative health consequences. I'm a smoker, man. Smoking's more addictive than heroin. Kills half a million people a year. Completely legal. We have made a conscious decision to allow people to smoke, to tax it, and, and, and to, you know, deal, you know, try to mitigate consequences. And, I, and this is where the argument is, and this is why I say, like, I'm open to that. Like, I'm not someone who shuts down the legalize everything or whatever. But decrim, I, I view decrim as something different because what decrim is, is there's nothing about purity. There's nothing about quality control. There's no mandated harm reduction. There's no safe use spaces. There's none of this. It's just decrim is everything we have now. You just don't get arrested for it. That's literally what... Right. And, and, and right. because of the fact that the drug supply in the United States has been polluted. Um, Which is a great argument for, I, I'm, I don't disagree with that. The way we got into this though, was talking about the ayahuasca ceremony mm -hmm. and your very valid concerns about them fucking it up for everybody else. Yep. I had brought that up as an aside, like, yeah, like as someone who's not like against the idea of talking about like legalization or decrim, whatever you want to say. Well, this is where if you have legalization, you can say, hey, if you're going to do a, 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 a ceremony like this, you must have A, right. B, C, X, Y, Z. You know, we're never my point is we're never going to get there if we are careless with the little inches we get on the board. Yes. So it, it, it's what I was trying to say there 10 minutes ago or whatever it was, <laughs> was that that is something that you want to make sure of with all this, including MDMA. And things like that. Because once we get people, the, the first person who takes psilocybin to try to treat something on their own and thinks they can fly and dies, they're going to make the headline out of that. Mm -hmm. Like, I always use this example. I remind people, the first self-driving... Insurrection shaman. Why is he called that? Because he talked about doing mushrooms. Insurrection shaman. The dude with the horns and the fur and the painted oh, face. Oh, Jesus Christ. Not that guy. But, no, but, no, no, no. One, so, so there are two people... One was actually very recently, and, and the other is Insurrection Shaman. Insurrection Shaman said, and I, I have no reason to doubt him, that he uses mushrooms all the time. I have no reason to doubt him either. <laughs> um, the second one was actually very very recently. Aaron Rodgers came out and said he did ayahuasca. Yes, um, saw that. And I had everybody and their brother message that <laughs> to me. And, and they're like, what do you think about this? He, this is Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, I've been saying since I first did psychedelics that this doesn't make you a hippie peacenik yes. like pacifist. And this is where I get frustrated when, when people say, oh, we just need to do some water supply. No. First off, I believe that, that giving somebody a, something without their knowledge or against their will is wrong. Always. Yes. 
Um, but also, you know, like they can help, but also if you don't have the proper set and setting, they, they can cause problems. And, and this is where, you know, some of my fears with decriminalization is, you know, we, we've talked before on, on here about how it's therapy coupled with a tool called a psychedelic. And there's so many people who are so used to the Western th Western model of, I take a Zoloft, it makes me better, that they think they can just go take it and they'll be better. Right. And that leads to negative outcomes. There's a whole bunch of stuff that like, if you have legalization, if you have medicalization and you have these things, you can prevent a lot of harm. The problem is we have none of that. And, the, and, and anybody who reaches out for help with, because they're having an issue with drugs gets arrested. If Huge some problem, you know, if somebody's Agreed. having a bad is, 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 is having a hard time on psychedelics, you know, what we used to call a bad trip, I would much rather them call someone at, at Zendo and get talked through it than have cops show up and shoot them. I don't disagree at all. I, I think that this is the this is the part of the argument when people are still talking about like equating drug use with criminal behavior. I'm like, dude, that is such a 1985 argument. But like, there's it's still crazy. There's still people who believe that that the fentanyl epidemic would be solved if people just didn't do drugs. That's way too. I mean, we have 350 million people in this country. The idea that people are going to be like you and and don't have interest in things and don't have problems or don't have reasons or whatever is insane. I agree with you. So, it's it's important that we have the conversations, especially around people that people can get behind easier, like veterans. Like when veterans speak up about stuff like this. I mean, that's why you have some right wing support for this stuff because they're like, wait a second, hold on a minute. All the Navy SEALs, for example, and operators are coming to their constituents where, you know, they happen they usually lean more right. And so they're going to they're they're going to their as constituents, they're going to their representatives and saying, This is working for me. And I have to go to fucking Mexico right now to do it. We need to bring it here. And or they're now, running for office now. Or they're running for office. Like Morgan Luttrell. Yeah. Yeah. So when they do that, you know, it gives it it gives it a good light, and I always want to make sure to give it the best light. So I want to make sure I also I wish the point out where we could go down the long, the wrong lane. Be, yeah, and and that's a concern of mine, and a lot of it's optics. You know, it's one, all optics. Yes. And and one of the one of my favorite questions to ask people who are involved um, in, in this is, if you could have every single thing change you want in drug policy in five years but you couldn't use any drugs. And if you did, you lost it all permanently. Or you could do drugs and get everything you want, but it'd take 15. Which would you do? And I find it interesting who says 15 and who says five. Who does? I'm not going to give names on that. <laughs> uh, right, but what types of people? Um, there's people who are in this because for the people who need it, and the, there's people in it for the people who want it. And wow, the problem cool. I have is when the people who want it are willing to sacrifice the people who need it. Because I'll be honest, I don't know anybody who needs it that is, is wanting to sacrifice people who want it. They, they'd love for everybody. But our system, unfortunately, means we have to use incrementalism. And I've never said, like, and, and there's certain areas where I do draw lines. Like, I have never once in a million, and I never will say, this should be reserved only for veterans. 
No. But what I'm saying is I see what happened with medical cannabis. Because can a veteran get a cannabis prescription from the VA? I assume no. The answer is no. A lot of veterans can't even afford it because they just decriminalized it and, and legalized it, which means, hey, the people, the, the, the people who work in government jobs can't do it. You know, the, the lady who, who's 65 and, and should retire with her arthritis, who cleans buildings in D.C., you know, but is still working because she's putting her granddaughter through college whose doctor says with your arthritis, you should really, you know, your best bet is, is, is cannabis. But you know what? She can't afford the $250 a month. Mm. So she gets a prescription for Percocet because it's $5. And so this is the problem when you say, when, when, when you do things the way I see the psychedelic movement going um, and how cannabis did it. Because all the people that they use to get it passed can't get it. But you know what? All the people that were pushing for it absolutely can. And so, wow. you, know, it, it, you know, if you just say, okay, forget all this FDA stuff. Screw that. Let's just decriminalize it. Okay, cool. No veteran can go to the VA and do it. And won't be allowed under DOD. People who don't have the ability to pay for 60 hours of therapy time. Don't get it. But the people who want it guarantee. And, and the funny thing is the the people who want it are still going to get it because right now you can go out to Hollywood, you can go out to Aspen there's parties with any drug you want. Absolutely. And they get it, but a veteran can't. Or the guy who, who's, who's a veteran who works at the post office knows he'll get fired if he goes and gets healed. And this is why there needs to be a legal route versus decrim because of how the system works. But there's, but a lot, you know, we saw it in cannabis. We're still fighting. The NDAA that just passed the House includes a bunch of stuff on research for cannabis at the VA. Because the VA still won't prescribe it. They're not even allowed to to sign an authorization, which means if a veteran wants to get a cannabis card, not only do they have to pay for the cannabis card, they also have to go pay for a doctor outside to do the evaluation. And then they have to deal with the VA, which will no longer prescribe them any Schedule II narcotics, period. Um, so, so we've got those problems don't get fixed through decriminalization. Legalization does. Medicalization does. And you know what? Yeah. I don't have any issues if somebody wants to go do MDMA on, on a Friday night. I don't have issues if somebody wants to go do mushrooms. But you know what? Their ability to do that and not worry about getting arrested should not compromise the ability of a veteran to get MDMA-assisted therapy within the VA. Oh, that's really – the whole thing there was well said. That's really well put, though, right the, there. And the other problem, honestly, is partisanship over progress. Well, that's always a problem on stuff. I'll work with anybody because I believe in progress. And you have. And if, I have. If, if I'm not mistaken, like you've literally talked to like all these people. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I've talked to Joe Biden and I talked to Donald Trump about this issue. Um, I've talked to Rand Paul and Cory Booker. I've talked to who actually both just co-sponsored a Right to Try Act involving Schedule One narcotics and cancer patients. Wow. Um, you know, 
both sides of the aisle. You know, Dan Crenshaw and AOC both had amendments uh, in the NDAA that cleared the House, instructing the Department of Defense to fund um, or conduct clinical research trials using active duty uh, and MDMA, psilocybin, ibogaine, and or 5-MeO-DMT for PTSD. That's how you get it for everyone. Yes. This idea, well, if you just decriminalize it, everyone will get it. No, the people who want it will get it. The people who need it won't. And that's a problem. And they're also, the, the examples you're pointing to, as it pertains to like the psychedelics, they are legalizing it through the medical tracks where it's controlled environments. Not everywhere. De How so? Uh, Oakland, D.C., Denver have all decriminalized psilocybin or plant-based psychedelics. Right, right, right. I'm talking about the, the bills that you oh, just yeah, – yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. that stuff though. When yes. we're talking about Democrats and Republicans working together, they are looking at it like Crenshaw, for example, is looking through all his friends who were in the Navy SEALs with him, the Marines and everything, who have – gone to Mexico and done these mm -hmm. MDMA treatments and he's like, all right, well, let's be able to get that here. That's great because now like this is where you don't get like the way they did your experience was as far as I can tell as a lay person looking through it incredibly well set up. You had sober psychiatrists on there. Yep. You had a known controlled dose. You had a clear environment that was set up. You had three times to go in there. You knew what the expectations were. You knew the full what the drug is comprised of, the drug is not something. And all of that also makes it a lot easier to talk about that with, with people like Dan Crenshaw. Yes. Because, you know, the other thing that medical cannabis, and again, I used cannabis. I, I'm, I'm not opposed to medical cannabis. I'm very, I have my issues with the politics involving cannabis. Um, you know, cannabis, here's, they, they think that psychedelics for mental health is the same as medical cannabis, where they just give you a card and you can do all the psychedelics you want, wherever you want, however you want. And that's not how it works. And once they get past that, right. they start listening. Um, but also, if you look at all the movement, look at all the movement in the states to decriminalize. You know, is that being done for, you know, to help the people who truly need it? Because I can tell you what happened in Washington, D.C., Initiative 81 used veterans to, to, to pass it. And as soon as it passed, they, they were delivering mushrooms through the weed delivery services and all the promises about opening clinics and doing all the, the these therapy sessions with veterans have never <laughs> materialized. And that that's the frustrating part. And, 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 you know, it's either part partisanship that stops it, or it's this idea of this only helps the people who need it. And it, it's not expanding to include the people that I want. So, this isn't a good thing. And that's always going to be a lingering problem. So as a realist, I look at this and I say, okay, well, what do we need to do to get the most basic high-level things through as fast as possible? Example of a basic high-level thing. Getting treatment available for MDMA with psychiatrists for veterans suffering from PTSD. It's there, there's, easy. There's three things that, that Republicans are, are – pretty down for when it comes to psychedelics funding for research which would include training therapists um reducing barriers to research depending on the barrier and, and the justification because they put a whole bunch of really high barriers to some stuff that really don't need to be that big mm -hmm. um 
Like, do you really need 15 cameras on a safe with one MDMA pill in it? <laughs> like, it's kind of weird. Um, and then expediting access to approved therapies. Republicans support that. You know, it, it it's kind of interesting. Uh, last year, you had uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez um, introduce uh, an amendment to the Labor H bill that would remove the prohibition on spending federal tax dollars on Schedule One legalization efforts. Okay. There is an exemption in that section to allow medical research, but it was used as as to prevent research once upon a time, which is no longer currently happening. NIH has actually issued multiple grants for psilocybin research. Um, but she put this amendment in. The Republicans opposed it. She did the same thing in 2019. Um, and actually, the bill was co-sponsored by Matt Gaetz. Uh <laughs> He co-sponsored a bill with AOC. Yeah, 2019. I think hell just froze over. On psychedelics. Wow. Um, As a matter of fact, uh, the AOC's amendment to the National Offense Authorization Act uh, that that just passed through the House was written by Matt Gaetz's office. Wow. He sent it to her to see if she would co-sponsor. She never responded and then filed the bill under her name (laughs) as well. So something that's really funny... um, I may have to send it to you is the video of Matt Gates of Matt Gates testifying in the rules committee on his psychedelic bill. He actually does a like whatever, whatever else he actually in that speech does a really good job talking about psychedelics. And then it gets really funny because he starts talking about, <laughs> he's like, my bills, I think 33 and hers is 337. He's like, I don't care which one you vote for as long as it makes it through. Wow. Um, yeah, and, and so that that was kind of funny. But when AOC had this this 507 amendment, you know, in 2019, the Republican response was drugs are bad. In 2021, the answer was, no, you're absolutely correct. Psychedelics do help with mental health. Um, they should be funded by the government. We just think your amendment isn't the way to do it. That's a, a sea change. Now, here's the funny part. All the reporting was congratulating AOC on her bill not passing because she increased the number of people who voted for it from the previous time. And nobody mentioned anything about a three-star Marine Corps general standing on the House floor saying that psychedelics were a good thing. That would have been really important to know. And this is what I mean by partisanship over progress. It's about cheering on your allies and preventing things you truly claim to support because the wrong party's doing it. When you've been sitting in there, in there though, with these left and right wing politicians, you know, and you have meetings with them, mm-hmm. you've had meetings with the biggest names like Trump and Biden. Let's start there. Do you feel like what you're saying is getting heard or this is just a regular go through the motions? So Trump and Biden... Um, I think it was go through the motions. Um, as a matter of fact, Donald Trump, I wanted to talk about psychedelics. He wanted to talk about my wife's dress. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, (laughs) a lot of it depends on on, on who we're talking about. So, so let's compare that to, to, uh, Senator Rand Paul. Um, I met him, you know, uh, two days after I got out of the hospital, after slitting my wrists at the Citadel, he came to give a greater issue speech. 
when I was in the hospital, I came up with this idea uh, to help people with PTSD and cognitive impairment get some six extra months of GI bills so they could actually finish their degree. Um, so I wrote this whole thing up and I gave it to him and he saw the bandages on my wrist and he, and he said, Oh, what happened? I since later found out, he thought I was going to say, I like cut myself in the kitchen or burned myself on a car or something like that. And I'm like, I slipped my wrist 10 days ago. He stopped what he was doing. Uh, he took, uh, his right hand man, Sergio Gore with him. And all three of us went behind this heavy curtain. And the first words out of Rand Paul's mouth was forget I'm a Senator. I'm a doctor. And I want to know what's going on right now. Um, I've had a few conversations. I've had multiple conversations with, with Senator Paul about this issue. He absolutely listens. Now, one of his issues is the cost because it's Rand Paul and he doesn't like spend any government money, right. but also these, you know, on certain things, specifically veterans, some, you know, he, he does. Um, and his father's a veteran, you know, it, it all honestly depends. Some people I can tell they're just going through the motions you know, they had to take a meeting. And, and I'll tell you, actually, the biggest tell is when I make a meeting with an office who they have me meet with. If they have me meet with a legislative correspondent in the hallway, they're not taking it seriously. If I'm having a conversation with the comms director, legislative directors, or, or the elected representative, they are taking it seriously. Dan Crenshaw takes it seriously. I know that for a fact. Now, granted, I first talked to Dan Crenshaw about psychedelics in my elevator because he was my neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yes. When was that? That was about a year and a half, maybe two years ago. About a year and a half ago. And how did that strike up? Like that convo? He was in the elevator and he's very recognizable. <laughs> yeah, he is. I knew exactly who he was and so I was like, Hey, sir, have you ever heard of using psychedelics to treat PTSD? And I started briefly, I gave my 30 second, you know, elevator pitch. And had, I assume he had been familiar with it at that point. The interesting thing was he was, he was in the elevator because he was coming home after he had talked to a Marine friend of his who had just gotten back from Mexico. Well, from overseas, I don't know if it was actually most Mexico, Costa Rica, Peru. Yeah. And well, and it's, it's funny because, uh, Last year, uh, he publicly supported psychedelics for the first time at Rice University Health Innovation Summit uh, in Houston, Texas, in, inside his district. Um, so it was a district constituent event. And and he, he actually said point blank, you know, I just got home from talking to this Marine who was talking about doing psychedelics and, and it helped his PTSD. And then here's this random neighbor of mine. <laughs> You know, who, who's crazy and, you know, pulls out the scars on his wrist and starts talking about how he doesn't have PTSD anymore. And that was a sign. And, and he's like, that's a sign to me that I need to do something about this. And and actually, his, his office has been fantastic. Um, that's great. You know, it depends on who it is. You know, some people absolutely do. Um, others, they don't. What What is refreshing, though, is you're having hits. You're having hits and misses on both sides. Yes. That's great. You know, and, and eventually you get enough momentum, they're all going to have to come around. I mean, data is data, man. But like when you're talking about the work that, well, the work that you do, because you, what's the name of your company? You consult on this yeah. for a bunch of places, yeah. right? Yeah, Lubecki Strategic Direction. Okay. So you consult for several different yes. major outlets, which I believe- All involving psychedelics. 
and that includes like John Costacopoulos' yeah, Apollo, Apollo, Apollo Pact, and then Maps as well. Right? Correct. Who else? Uh, so I'm also currently advising vets, veterans, exploring treatment solutions, um, and I, I also do some smaller advising um, to different veterans groups that are trying to get involved more in, in, in the psychedelic space, but really don't understand. They, they know it works. They just don't know anything else about it. Um, so, so I, I do some advising there. Um, but you know, it's, it's coming around. You've got to have both sides. And this is why I've never heard anybody on the right say, no, no, don't work with Democrats on this. I've never heard them say, you know, this needs to be our thing. I have absolutely heard that with Democrats. That sucks. It does. But also, can I be honest? That's on this issue. I, we can pick other issues and be yeah. exactly reversed. Um, but they're not a, surprised. It just sucks. But also, there, there's Democrats that I have talked to who have point blanks it. I will literally do anything you want me to do that you can get a Republican to sign off on. Well, that's good. So those are the people that need to run point on this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, politics sucks with that. But <laughs> I I think, you know, it, it's... But we can fix politics if we if we can heal trauma in people when it happens. Because how many people that, you know, think of somebody who right now in your head, and it doesn't matter who, this is for the audience at home too, think of somebody you think is a bad person. Now, ask yourself, why are they a bad person? Not, not why do you think they're a bad person, but why? How do you think they became a, that person? And so imagine if they had been able, you know, let's say it's because they're abused as a child. Okay. So when they're taken out of that abusive home, we can heal them. And then they're not traumatized. And, you know, then they grow up and, and you know, they, they go to college and they get married. I'd say they find out their wife's cheating on them. And then they go do some psilocybin and, and deal with that grief. And they, they go meet somebody else. And then they decide to run for office. Like, when people aren't making decisions based on trauma, they make better decisions. It's a good argument. Most of our political decisions are entirely emotionally based. And, and that's not... Hold on a second. That's not even... This, is, this makes the point better. That's not even necessarily trauma in that case. It's reactionary, which you form reactionary opinions that go in whatever direction they do, left, right, or indifferent. And that could be based on or is actually almost always based on your own life experiences, which could then tie in things that may be traumatic for you. So it's like a full circle right there. I see what you're saying. That's good. Yeah. I mean – when Donald Trump was young, his brother died of alcoholism. Yeah. We, we've seen how his father treated him and, and ignored him and all of this. Why do you think he always needs people to pay attention to him? Imagine if that trauma had been fixed earlier. He'd probably be a richer person. Could be, Both yeah. financially as well as, as, as a human. Um, you know, and, and this is the thing. It's funny. I think some of, of the right's concern is because the counterculture consists, consistently says, oh, all you got to do is just drop LSD and, and you'll you'll become a, a hippie peacenik and it'll all be love and rainbows. And, and I'm like, that's not how this works. No. Um, you know, 
there is an amplifier effect. We saw that with an insurrection shaman. Like, these can have bad outcomes. We know this. And this is where, if everything is on the up and up, we can mitigate bad outcomes. We can do harm reduction. We can do things. S simple things. Like, one of the reasons that MDMA was originally banned was because people died because they didn't drink enough water. And they yes. went out and partied and danced and sweated in a, in a hot environment and all of this. So when I did it, one of one of the things for harm reduction is they make sure the therapists, one of their jobs is to make sure you drink water. Or in my case, it was great, great power aid, but controlled, controlled medical environment. Safety at the forefront, professionals right there, professionals an active part of the process too because you're talking with them and talking through this experience, which by the way, how long – it was eight hours, the full like yeah. trip and, and session? Yeah. How long were the effects available? Like when did they start to taper? Uh, so one – so it takes about, took about 45 minutes to kick in mm -hmm. and then uh, two hours in, you take a booster dose, which doesn't like – I hate using these words, but it doesn't make you higher – it just extends the therapeutic range because one of the goals with MDMA therapy is like you can't be too whacked out of your board, and if there's not enough, it doesn't work. So there's this therapeutic range that allows the healing to occur. Mm. Um, but you know, again, you can have harm reduction. You can have all these things we're talking about in a non-medical environment if everything's above board like how about this how many people you know i hate going back to heroin but how many people die of a heroin overdose because the people they're with are scared to call the police or an ambulance i'm probably a good number i mean and then the argument there is getting to that point and what leads to that for sure but yes probably a good number but most of the people who are addicted to heroin in the united states were st it was started on prescriptions and that, and I agree. That's a huge, huge issue. The whole like legalized opiate side of it with oxy and all that. That's. But yeah, also, I got a lot of thoughts on yeah, that. Yeah, and, and, and I mean that's the thing. Most people don't use drugs that way. They 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 got them them addicted and then they took the pills away and then they turned to street stuff. Most people who use drugs recreationally don't use them that way. Yeah, I just don't know. Heroin's the. I agree with you on the other drugs. I do. I you do not have to argue with me on that. Like I'm with you. Heroin is the one where I literally have never heard that until Carl Hart was saying like, "Oh yeah, I huff it like once every night or what, whatever he says." That was the first time I ever heard that. Anyone I've ever known who got into heroin, it ruined their life or they died. I, I'll be honest, it, it surprised me. Um, like I, I know people, you know. It didn't surprise me as much when I st started seeing people say, oh, I'm, I, you know, hey, I broke my leg like a year ago, still got a big old bottle of Percocet, and they still have it a year later because, hey, it's New Year's. I'm going to take a perk. Mm, yeah. Or, you know, hey, whatever. You know, that's most people's drug use. It is not all day, every day, like the prescriptions that get you, and, and that's how the addiction starts. If you use it, you know, once in a while, like if you go out every Friday night and have a beer, you're probably never going to get addicted. You know what? If, if you take an opiate every Friday night 
the odds of addiction are very, 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 very low. The problem with I got to look into that yeah. research more. I mean, addiction happens because you take a lot of it. Yes, like, and you take it regularly. Right. So but there's a higher chance. Not this. By the way, there's addiction problems with alcohol for sure. Right. But there is. It seems to be without looking at the numbers in front of me, there is a way higher hit ratio of basic usage leading to reliance when it comes to opiates rather than alcohol. But one of the big questions becomes who did that research and what was their purpose? Because, you know, there was a study that showed that that MDMA was like taking a melon baller to the brain and that's because they altered the pictures. That's a fair question. You know, it's a very fair question. I'll, I'll, I'll and, and and this is one of the problems is when the government alters science for policy, people don't trust the government on policy. You know, the other issue you have is when they do these surveys, how many people are honest? Very few. Like what specifically, like what kinds of surveys? If you do surveys like, do you use heroin every day? Like, oh, right. Like, yes. I, I, that's fair. You know, the people who do it know it's illegal and a felony. Any amount mm -hmm. is a felony mm -hmm. and will send you to jail for years. I don't think that's the answer because I don't think anybody. I agree. <laughs> that's not the answer at all. But totally agree. But the flip side to this. So, so here's here's the thing. You have three options. Either you can put people in jail. Bad option. You can not put people in jail and make it like lettuce, which is decrim. Okay. Or you can put it in a structured environment. Like I'll tell you, Rick Doblin has this idea that you should be, be able to go get a license to do drugs and that like a driver's license. And you have to take a class that teaches harm reduction, et cetera, et cetera. And if you have, have problems or, or cause issues, you can get a ticket and if you get too many t too many points, you lose your license to do drugs. Now, I think the problem with that is people are still going to do drugs. But also, something else to think about. How many kids smoke cigarettes right now? More than they report. Yes, in part because of vaping. Um, but cigarette use is actually very low. You look at cannabis use amongst children in states where it's legal. And it's actually gone down. Now, part of this is because they can't access it. My kid can go buy, you know, a 12-year-old can go get heroin. It was easier for my kid in South Carolina to find weed than cigarettes. Because they didn't have it in a lot of stores? No, because no store would sell it to them. Oh, right. And he was underage, you're saying? Right. Got it. Okay. So when he was in middle school, it was easier for him. Oh, yeah. Yes. Way easier. Yes. Agreed. And that's because it's illegal. If it, so, so with the, so, so I understand the negative that you, that, that you keep, that, that you talk about, but also the positives and the other things involved far outweigh that. And here's the other thing. It, like one, if I'm wrong, we can entirely pull it back. I, I think we should explore it. I think that part of the problem is the push for decriminalization doesn't have regulation. It doesn't do anything to fix the problems 
that are the justification for legalization. Where it's coming from, what's in it, all that. Yes. And, yes. I mean, we can go bigger. I, I mean, the national security implications of the drug war are enormous. Huge. Agreed. I mean, think yeah. about this. Why do you think the cartels kill people? Because they can't go to court to enforce their territory. Right. If you turn them into pharmaceutical companies. They got to use court. They stop. Like, the Sacklers and Pablo Escobar. Yeah, Pablo Escobar, bad dude, blew up and killed a lot of people. Sacklers are every bit as bad. They just didn't have the courage to look at it. No, no. The Sacklers didn't have to. Because they had the courts. And yeah. they had the police doing their bidding. So, you know, if it becomes legal, what's the number one source of funding for terrorism? I'm going to guess drugs. Because I know, I, know, yeah. I know they were like... Other, than, it, other yeah. than state sponsor, it's narcotics trafficking. Yeah. Like, the, what's it called? Hezbollah, one of the biggest Coke dealers in the world. They send it through like used cars up mm -hmm. and around the world through Africa and, and Mexico and, and like a cycle to get it to the U.S. Contraband, black market economies is what supports all the bad things. Yes. So if you take the most lucrative thing out of the black market, the funding for that dries up. Just yeah. like how they started, by the way, though, this, this is the problem. It all comes back to the capitalism buy-off system. You notice the weed conversation of getting it massively like legalized, decriminalized, all that stuff. And let's go to like production mm -hmm. to get it produced. That started when companies like Constellation Brands and Anheuser-Busch, if I'm getting some of the companies wrong, but like the point being when the alcohol companies started taking their own positions and buying up giant weed fields, because mm -hmm. now what did they do? They sent all their lobbyists who have relationships and bought off all these politicians to D.C. and said, oh, by the way, now we're in the business. Eh. So all that shit. What do you mean? Eh? They didn't go to D.C. They went to the states and changed the laws. There's there. D.C. hasn't changed weed laws. Same, no, no. Same problem here because now they're working on D.C. I'm talking about oh, the yeah, same yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah. But the bottom line is all the politics that they bought off, they're now bringing – now they're starting to argue for that because now they actually can control that business as opposed to in the past, they loved that weed was illegal because they wanted alcohol to be the hmm. thing that you could go and get very easily. Yep. And it's money. Yeah. It's politics. It's power. But, but here's the other thing. Nothing about them getting involved says that the other things can't happen. And what I mean by this is, yes, you're right. But you know what? Anheuser-Busch is not the only beer you can buy. I mean, dude, walk into like Whole Foods yeah. and there's what? Like 9,000 different kinds of IPAs. Right. But they're not as big of companies. That's the point. I'm saying the biggest companies, the ones that run it, the ones mm -hmm. that are at the top of the chain. They're the ones who went there. They're the ones going in and buying up weed now. They're buying yeah. up in Canada all this stuff. And they're like, okay, well, now now we're on it. So now it could be legal. But but the thing is, there. so like when it comes to cannabis, I, I've always said this. You're going to have your Swanson's TV dinner bought at Walmart. And you're going to have your, your you know, GMO-free, organic, gluten-free variety from the farmer's market. Just like we, we have food. Um. But also cannabis versus much drugs that have much greater potentials for abuse do need to be treated differently. Mm. Like cannabis should entirely be like booze, like everywhere. Yeah, but agreed. You know, part of the problem we have is 
you know, and, and honestly, the reason that the States Act didn't pass is because the Democrats insisted that, no, it be legal in all states or not. Which is so weird because the answer there is what they're literally saying is we fully believe that people should continue to be incarcerated for this unless we get what we want. I mean, it's the same thing when it comes to criminal justice reform. I'll take what I can get. If I can get 20% of the people who I believe shouldn't be in prison out of prison, I will absolutely do it tomorrow. I'm not going to say, no, it's all or nothing because Smart. at least that 20% gets out. And you know what? It's a shitty thing that that other 80% is there. Uh, but, you know, I'll take 20 and then I'll fight for another 20. I'll always fight for everything, but I'm not going to say no because of partisanship. I'm not going to say I, I work with Dan Crenshaw and AOC's offices, like literally. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I was actually one of the people who, who got Matt Gates to co-sponsor AOC's bill. Wow. Um, because she called her office called and said, we need a Republican. I'm like, let me see what I can do. Go get Gates. <laughs> no, I'm like, let me see what I can do. And I hung up the phone. I'm like, who the fuck am I going to get to work with AOC on the right? I'm like, oh, I know who. And part of it's because Matt Gates doesn't care on stuff like this. He, 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 he'll work with the left. And this was also well before. This is 2019, right? 2019. Yeah, it probably wouldn't be the same today. No, no, no. Yeah, it's entirely different today. But in 2019. Um, but, you know, he was still Matt Gates back then. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, I will, you know, I go talk to Trump. I go talk to Biden. I will literally go talk to anybody um, ab about this issue because those are the people who have access and, and, and have the ability to make those changes. And, you know, it, it, it it's also funny because it gets super complex once you get into it because it seems easy. It's like, well, this, this, this helps heal PTSD. So let people use it. We're done. And it gets way more complicated. I mean, we see like banking and cannabis and all these other things. Like it gets far more complicated than people think it is. But, um, I just blanked. Well, you, I mean, you said enough there because the, the point is like, we need guys like you who are willing to work on both sides and just get it done. However it can be done. And, and also, someone like you who has been through it and has seen such a change in their life telling telling their story i mean you know like i said the being the the documentary feature with with michael pollan on how to change your mind on netflix you know your segment and all the segments in that episode and really all the episodes i watch were incredibly compelling oh, Lori, um the woman was, yes. was fantastic and and there was so many so much so much one of the things i love that she said is i thought that was only for veterans you know PTSD affects everyone. And, and I have a lot of people who reach out to me because they see me in media and stuff like that. And I try to help everyone, every person who contacts me. Um, sadly, like at some point I'm going to be able to say, oh, you'd like MDMA assisted therapy? Here's your nearest clinic. Right now I'm like, got to wait. <laughs> um, but I'll set people up with therapists and like all this stuff to, to try and help them. But um I had, I had somebody and they were like, well, I don't, I, they knew they had it, had PTSD, but they wouldn't say it. I said, we don't have to call it PTSD. We can call it purple hippo if you want. Like, and, and, and the issue was she thought it was just for veterans and that somehow people going into combat experience worse than her. And I've heard 
you know, you look at Lori Tipton's story, and, and that's the woman in the episode uh, with me on How to Change Your Mind. It was episode three. Yeah. And, and you know, she survived Katrina. Then she was raped, had to have an abortion after the rape, and then walked in after her mother killed two people and committed suicide. Found the whole thing. Yeah. Guess what? That's way worse. Yeah, she had it. Than, than a lot of people. And, and this is where, like, and even she thought, no, that's just that's just for soldiers. And and this is where, yes, on psychedelics and on a lot of issues involving mental health, veterans have taken the charge and taken the lead. In part because this is not easy work. Um, it, it's very emotionally demanding, um, especially when you have people who are suffering and there's not a lot you can do to help them. Um, or you have people call up and they're, they, they mean this in the absolute best way possible, but they're like, I wish my brother who committed suicide four years ago had what you had. Yeah. And things like that. So it does absolutely take an emotional toll but part of the reason veterans do it is because our trauma is socially acceptable. I get why, you know, before this, we were talking about, there's things that, that are in my therapy tapes and that I, I've dealt with in my life that I, I have no issues one-on-one -on -one talking with you about, but I'm not going to put it in media. You know, mo uh, over half, I believe, of the participants in the MAP study were sexual assault victims. Um, So, you know... But I also get why a woman who is raped doesn't want to go on Netflix and, yes. and, and, you know, that in part because people in her life, people in her family may not know what if it was a family member, but I can, I can come on a show and say, Hey, I was in the army. I served in Iraq. I came back with PTSD and people go, Oh, okay. That makes complete sense. Mm. You have somebody like, for example, a rape victim. Okay. Well, let's see. Was she really raped? You know, what was she wearing? You know, th there's shame and stigma associated with it, both internally and societally. And that's why. And, and then you have people who, you know, may have very severe PTSD because they were in a car accident. And they're like, well, I was just in a car accident. People get in car accidents all the time. But our, but veterans, our, our trauma is socially acceptable. And, and I believe that that gives us an obligation that obligates veterans to actually speak up. Wow. Because we can. Well, you're doing it. And, and I really, I really, really enjoyed this today. I, I learned a lot too. I think people out there will as well. And where, where can people find you online? Like um, is Twitter your best spot or? Twitter at John Lebecki, uh, search for Sergeant Psychedelic on, on, on Instagram or Jonathan Lebecki or Sergeant Psychedelic on Facebook. And then what were those other two documentaries besides How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan that you're also in? Uh, Goop Labs with Gwyneth Paltrow. There was an uh, The Healing Trip is the name of the episode. Oh, is that on Netflix too? It should still be on Netflix. Okay, cool. Uh, and then uh, The Business of Drugs, which is still on Netflix. Yep. Uh, it's an episode called Synthetics, The Last 13 Minutes. And the reason I say The Last 13 Minutes is because the first part, they start talking about Spice and K2 the synthetic cannabis stuff, um, which is really kind of weird how they, how they filmed it and all that. So yeah, if you go to like the last 13, 14 minutes, um, you'll see me in uniform at the New York city veterans day parade. Oh, that's awesome. Well, 
thank you so much for coming up here. I really, oh, really thanks appreciate for having me on it. Here. And I would love to hear how things are looking a year or two from now. Absolutely. Some of the legislation. Everybody else, you know what it is. Give it a thought. Get back to me. Peace.